0: Welcome to the Stronger by Science podcast and the final episode of 2019. Today's episode begins by recapping all the ups and downs of 2019 and we announce our podcasting plans for 2020. After that we've got some feats of strength and we have a hot off the presses segment discussing new research related to the effective reps concept and antioxidant supplementation. We also discuss some behavior change theories that might help you or your clients make some positive changes in 2020. Finally, we interview world champion powerlifter Mike Tushier about all sorts of training-related topics. Happy holidays, happy new year, and thank you for listening. Welcome back to the Stronger by Science podcast, and in the final episode for 2019, I'm joined by a special temporary guest host named Greg Knuckles. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for coming back. I was, You know, it's the end of the year. I was looking back at a lot of records and metrics and stuff with the podcast, and I realized you made more guest co-host appearances than any other guest co-host in 2019. Actually on all of our shows, which is really, I mean, that's a good year for you.
1: I am both surprised and delighted.
0: Yeah, it didn't feel that way. I looked back at the numbers though, and you were actually on every episode. So thank you for joining me all year. Um, What else went well this year for the podcast?
1: So uh, biggest thing is... We went into this having no idea what to expect, because this was the first, and for a time, the only fitness podcast, so I know if anyone would be interested in this new medium, um, so we didn't really have any any concrete goals for the podcast, <laughs> just, just to try to get it out and hope it was good, uh, but we broke a million downloads in our first year, um, going into... Like September or so, it looked like we were going to be close, um, but things just kept on growing through the end of the year, um, and we took down that milestone. It feels slightly less good because it's not like that was a goal we were working towards, <laughs> um, but it happened, and so that was nice.
0: Yeah, and so I mean, so. For us to get on equal playing field, like equal level with Rush Limbaugh, how much do we have to increase our downloads? Uh, when he was at his peak, how many millions per day was it? Well,
1: I mean, it was different because it would be like total people tuning into the right. radio. Yeah. Um, But I think Rush's peak was something like 30 million uniques per week.
0: <laughs> okay.
1: which Which is honestly wild. It was like a fifth of the U.S. adult population.
0: We're close. The problem is we have these boring gray microphones. We need the golden microphone. We really do. All right. So we, we also hit another big milestone, not necessarily the podcast, but we talk about Mass a lot on the podcast. So you want to share that with our listeners?
1: I shared the first one.
0: Okay, then I'll share it. You got it. Uh, So every Black Friday, as we mentioned on the podcast, we do a big uh, Black Friday sale for Mass. And this year was our biggest sale ever by far. Um, we raised $64,000 for the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Really fantastic charity. I'd like to take a lot of credit for donating that money, but realistically, it was all of you guys, everyone listening that, that actually did it. So so thank you all. Uh, those of you who did subscribe during that sale period, um, that money is going to go to fantastic use and we are super happy that we could kind of participate, But but you guys are the ones who put the money up. So thank you. Okay, now on to things that didn't go as well. What went poorly this year, Greg?
1: Well, so we've uh, we've talked about the fact that we're generally hated and despised for um conservative Christian beliefs on this podcast many times. And anti marijuana beliefs. I mean those those two things go hand in hand. Right. Um but the uh, the general hate that we're receiving has extended from iTunes reviews to YouTube uh, and has extended from our conservative Christian beliefs to just our general intelligence. So we're really getting bombarded by by hate and rancor on all sides at this point. Uh, And this one, I'll admit, it honestly cut me pretty deep. Uh, I didn't know if... Honestly, I still don't know if the show can recover, but we'll do what we can Uh, and and once I read this, I think you'll see why. So it was a YouTube comment left by someone whose name is Bob Bob. And I hope you're sitting down for this because it might hit you as hard as a listener as it hit me. Bob Bob said stronger, my stronger by morons, lol. And, uh, it got me
0: there are certain things that are off limits yeah that you just don't touch and i I think that is that crosses several lines
1: it's so witty and incisive too that's Uh, the worst
0: part is that you know you know you got got
1: yeah like why type out a whole paragraph of well thought out criticism when you can just hit someone right where it hurts the most in
0: in four words yeah it's, the, the ones that hurt the most are the ones that are undeniably true and artfully expressed and this one checks all the boxes yeah so uh but there is a silver lining right we we did have a, some updates on we, previous reviews
1: <laughs> we did uh so we will try to pick up the pieces after this latest shot across the bow uh but as eric said there there was a bit of a silver lining um so <laughs> we, we read some critical reviews on a previous podcast, and I think that segment may have gotten back to one of the people who left one of those reviews, because uh, one of the people updated their one-star review saying, like, these guys suck, I hate them, uh, to a three-star review, and now the text of it reads, edit. I guess I picked the wrong first episode to listen to because the hosts were being sarcastic. Since I can't delete a review, I'll give a three-star placeholder while I give this podcast a second chance. So that's nice. I will note, we weren't being sarcastic. We're never sarcastic on this podcast, um, so I'm not really sure where that's coming from. However, we do appreciate the upgrade to a three-star review and the second chance.
0: Kind of bittersweet, though, because this whole sarcastic accusation, I'd rather be hated for who we are than loved for who we're not. So the fact that he changed it based on the false pretense that we didn't mean it, it really, it's hard to consider that necessarily a win. You know what I mean? Yeah, for sure. But in any case, we no longer have any interest in increasing the metrics. The whole point of this podcast is to move from three stars to four in that for that particular <laughs> review because we know it's fluid now. We know that we have the ability to move that needle. Right, yeah. It's,
1: it's now a continuous variable. It's not just... <laughs> It's not just one number set in stone for all of
0: time. Yeah. So, hey, kudos for the open-mindedness, even if it's completely the wrong interpretation of the show. <laughs> okay. So, uh, 2020, Greg, do you have any uh, goals or New Year's resolutions coming up?
1: Um, I mean, not really. I'm not really a New Year's resolution kind of guy. Um, I do have some, I guess, like one general goal for the upcoming year. And I think that's just to to kind of be more consistent with everything. Um, one of the things about the way our business works is there's like pretty serious ebbs and flows to what we need to get done on a day-to-day basis and at like particular times in the month, especially like the crunch time with like trying to get mass written and edited every month. Uh, and so I'm, I'm not a... I'm not someone for whom schedule like daily schedules stick that well. And so for me to get on a, a good schedule and just like, you know, find like a good flow on a day- to- day basis, it takes a while to get into that flow and I get knocked out of it pretty quickly. Um, and that happened quite a few times this year where, you know, for several weeks at a time things would be good. I'd be sleeping consistently, getting to the gym well, knocking out what I needed to then, uh, you know, shit would happen. Um, sometimes it was mass deadline, sometimes it was travel, and then it would just take, like, weeks or months to, like, reestablish a good schedule again. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I I want to work on uh, trying to be more consistent with, with sticking to a schedule. Because even though I'm not someone who particularly likes structure, I do think I do better when I have more structure. Um, so, I mean, that's something I'm going to be working on this year. And then also, uh, just generally saying no more. Um, (laughs) like early on in my career, I, I attribute some degree of my success to just saying yes to everything. Um, so any opportunity that came up, I would say yes to it without even thinking about it that led to working a lot, but definitely opening more doors for me. At this point, though, I'm asked to do more than I ever have been. Um, and I think I say yes far too much, and it winds up digging me into pretty big holes. Um, so another, I guess, semi-resolution is ju- just to be more intentional about it and, and lose that knee-jerk reaction of saying yes to everything um, and just st- trying to learn how to say no from time to time.
0: How about you? You know, for me, uh, I, I like, I, I think it was a good year. I'm happy with what I got done. I need to get more consistent with training, getting into the gym more to not be a total hypocrite. Um, it was one of those things where an injury derailed me and then it was just like, oh, I guess I don't train anymore because I'm hurt. <laughs> and then, then yeah. at a certain point, I was like, wait a minute. I don't think I'm that hurt anymore and I still wasn't training much. So, so I've recently gotten back into it pretty consistently, and that's a good thing. Um I know Eric Lee Salazar challenged me to a bodybuilding competition in like 2021, and I was like, "Oh god, this isn't going to go well." <laughs> um I still don't know <laughs> I still don't know how I feel about that. Um I guess I have to become an IFBB pro to compete with him now, right? Can pros not compete
1: in amateur shows?
0: I don't know how the IFBB works, but he's a pro now and
1: I have no idea,
0: I guess so I guess in twenty twenty, I guess the goal is to be an ifbb pro. maybe <laughs> that's that's not serious, by the way. Um, okay, but yeah, I also want to get more writing done. and and that you you mentioned having structure. It kind of brings us to the next thing, which is a small to moderate sized announcement. We get together all the time and talk about the podcast how things are going. We're extremely happy with how twenty nineteen went But shifting the focus toward twenty twenty, We are going to have some little changes in terms of the structure. What we're going to do is shift to a bi... Is it bi-weekly? Every other week?
1: Bi-weekly has uh, two different possible interpretations. Yeah, we're not doing twice a week. Yeah, so so (laughs) bi-weekly could either mean twice a week or once every other week. And and we mean the latter.
0: Yeah, so we're, we're going to start releasing episodes once every other week. And what we're going to do is kind of consolidate the formats and combine them. So we're not going to have like, you know, just q and A Q&A episode every other week, permanently. Right. So what we're going to do is have Q and A segments that go into the entire episode. So we're kind of merging things back together into one singular show format. If we do interviews, they're more often than not going to be released as just additional bonuses that just kind of sporadically kind of happen. Um, and the reason we're doing that, we want to make sure that we're still able to bring out different kinds of content. So, you know, two and a half hours of, of podcasting a week is a somewhat hellish pace if you're doing a lot of research into the content. And so in, in the interest of, of making sure we're always delivering really good stuff and able to do a lot of writing as well, we're going to be doing every other week. You're going to be getting the same amount of content from us. It's just not all going to be podcasts because we look back at 2019. It was pretty podcast heavy, I think.
1: Yeah, I mean, the... <laughs> in hindsight, it was one of those things where while we were doing it, we were just like, wow, I mean, people are listening. Um, It is fun to record these things. I enjoy it. Uh, But then when you look at other podcasters, like people who put out the amount of content we do, it, it tends to follow one of two different trajectories. Either it's all interview podcasts, so it's not really on the hosts to pull together, you know, four of those five hours of content yeah uh or thinking every two weeks but you know like the vast majority of the content um or you know it's it's people who podcast professionally uh and the thing is like the, the way the way we've always run the business is like we put out a lot of free content and then also have some paid content as well um and so like the podcast isn't monetized Like, we'll occasionally mention Stronger by Science products on it, but the, like, conversion rate from pitching stuff on podcasts to uh, people buying products is, like, way worse than email or social media. Um, We haven't accepted, uh, like, a sponsor or anything. So for all intents and purposes, the podcast is just free content, um, which is fine. Like, that has been our intention. But we also have other other means of putting out free content. Um, the biggest of which is the website, which is like the cornerstone of what we do. Uh, and like Eric said, the podcast by and large cannibalized the website this year. Um, (laughs) and so, you know, we're, we're, we're just trying to bring the two more back into balance moving forward.
0: Yeah. So you're still going to be getting the same amount of content from us. It's just going to be, you know, some's going to be written. Some's going to be audio still going to have episodes every other week. Um, one of the nice things is that the podcast is essentially going to become a highlight reel. You know, we're kind of in the in the groove of making like two or three hours of pretty solid content a week. So now we're going to be trying to condense that into a hopefully not five hour <laughs> every other week <laughs> podcast. So it, it, it probably is going to become like a highlight reel. So that's going to be an exciting aspect to it.
1: Or I mean, we didn't plan on them being two to three hours a piece. Correct. It very well could just turn into a five-hour podcast every two weeks. (laughs) We're gonna
0: no, we're we're not. We're gonna try not to do that. But yeah, so hopefully listeners understand. I mean, like if if we do like a research roundup with five studies in it, like we just tore apart like five papers, prepping for that single segment of that episode, which we're happy to do. We love the work, but I, I think we do need to bring some balance back to the table. So for sure, hopefully people aren't gonna light up our our comments and give us a bunch of mean reviews
1: yeah so in addition to the podcast moving from once a week to once every two weeks again um something else we're planning on as well is kind of like organizing it into seasons um so another another time where the podcast did kind of put a little bit of hitch in our giddy up this year was like during the summer and around the holidays. So, especially with trying to get out an episode a week, but just in general during those times, um, a lot of conferences are during the summer, um, and we do get invited to speak a reasonable amount. And so, you know, trying to find time to record and edit the podcast around travel during the summer is is pretty cumbersome uh, and, and put us in some tight spots this year. Um, and also just around the holidays (laughs) so uh the the week leading up to recording this current podcast has been uh just a a huge piece of shit for me um (laughs) but this is like the last thing and then like you know i'll be able to coast into christmas and it's kind of the opposite for eric um like he has had a lot of work this past week but now with us recording the podcast today and him going to be having to edit it. Uh, he He's setting himself up for a, a couple pretty shitty days uh, prior to Christmas. Anyway, so that's not a, a great way to experience the holidays. <laughs> and so um, one of the other things we're going to do is basically we're going to run the podcast from... So you're going to hear this on the 26th, or that's when it's going to drop. We're going to come back on January 16th, uh, and then we're going to run it again until like mid-April. We're going to be off from mid-April until the end of July. We're going to come back in August and go from August until mid-November. So um, we, it's not unlikely that we'll drop something during those times we're off, Maybe we'll record a cool interview. Maybe there'll just be some stuff that comes out that we're like, hey, we really want to jump on the mic and talk about this for 30, 45 minutes. Um, but essentially, we're going to have like a spring season and a fall season of the show. Um, so yeah, that's, that's the plan moving forward, just so you guys know what to expect.
0: And I don't want to hear complaints about this, because every time I get a message from somebody on Instagram, they'll be like, hey, love the podcast, and ask me a question. I'll be like, we already covered that. They're like, sorry, I'm 11 episodes behind. I'm like, okay, you need some time to catch up. <laughs> so that, that that's another thing. Okay, so um let's move on to some content. We've got some uh the final feats of strength of 2019.
1: We do. Um so just to start with, and and honestly, this one's kind of like a trick lift, but for my money, it may be the feat of strength of 2019. Um, I just found it unbelievably impressive so if you don't know what the jefferson deadlift is it's essentially doing a deadlift where you're straddling the bar instead of the bar being in front of your shins um and so jefferson deadlifts are are generally perceived to be harder than regular deadlifts uh since you can get over the bar a little bit better it's like theoretically maybe a little bit easier for your back but at the same time like your spine's probably going to be twisted so it is probably going to be harder for one side of your back, but the biggest thing is just, it's, it's pretty tough to be able to equally distribute the load and the weight between both of your legs. So it's like not quite a unilateral exercise, but it's certainly not like a perfectly bilateral exercise. It's just kind of weird. Um, and I, have done a fair amount of Jefferson's and I mean, for me personally, they're, they're quite a bit harder than regular deadlifts. Um, But anyway, so Jefferson deadlifts generally aren't something people go super heavy on. Um, And maybe about a month ago, uh, a guy named Sean Green shared a video of himself um, doing the Jefferson deadlift with, I think, 805, which, to my knowledge, was the biggest Jefferson deadlift ever done, and according to... People who like follow odd lifts like that more closely than I do. They were also saying that was the biggest Jefferson deadlift that they were aware of anyone ever doing. Um, so that's impressive. Then a guy named Steve Johnson fired back and did 810. So that's cool. We went from, you know, zero, 800 pound Jefferson deadlifts to two. That's pretty impressive. And then Sean Green, that first guy, fired back again and did a 910 pound Jefferson deadlift, which is batshit crazy. That's, er, no, no, no. I lied. It was 906, slightly less crazy. But regardless, that's ridiculous. Um, (laughs) and if you've never done a Jefferson deadlift before, um, go give it a shot. Uh, I mean, doing a deadlift of any sort with 906 is crazy. Um, but even crazier for a Jefferson deadlift. So that that was cool, go check that out. Um, next, also on the deadlift front is uh, Jamal Browner. So we've talked about Jamal on this podcast before. Um, he has he has posted a lot of videos to Instagram of him deadlifting really, really heavyweight, but most of those videos were him pulling with straps. Um, so sh- <laughs> straps and sumo. Uh, and that's unfortunate because like, yeah, if you can pull heavy with straps, but it's conventional, like who cares about your grip? You can go do a strongman meet. A lot of them allow straps, but strongman doesn't allow sumo. So like straps and sumo is just kind of this like no man's land where there's no competition you can do to really show out uh, with that style of deadlifts. And the story I've, I've heard from a lot of people is basically that Jamal had grip issues um that he was doing grip work but also training heavy deadlifts with straps so essentially you know he could train the muscles without his grip being a limiting factor while also working on grip so it would become less of a limiting factor. Uh, so up to like he I think he's pulled over a thousand with straps before, which is wild. Um, and I believe he competes at 242. Um, so not like you know not a, a super big guy either. Um, but anyway, so his best deadlift in meat at this point is, uh, 865 or 392 and a half kilos. And up until recently, that was the most I'd seen him pull without straps either. Uh, he may have gone like slightly heavier than that, but not much heavier. But anyway, he's, he's taken to learning hook grip, um, which seems to really, really be helping his grip problems. So he posted a video maybe about two weeks ago of himself pulling, uh, 960, which yeah, I should have got that in kilos. 960 is a lot of kilos. Um, <laughs> what what is that like 430 or something? Whatever. It's a it's a shit ton of kilos. Um, so that's like almost 100 pounds more than the most he's done on the platform. Um, if, if memory serves from that video, he was using uh kilo plates like the thin ones, so he, it wasn't like you know, the the fat plates that sometimes people use to get a little extra whip for the gram. Um, so, you know, seemed like a very, very legit deadlift. 95 pounds over the best he's pulled in competition. Um, and I mean, based on what he's pulled with straps before, once he really gets that hook grip locked in, maybe we're going to see a thousand out of him. Um, unbelievably strong deadlifter though. Very impressive. Uh, the next is... Also, one of the things I found more impressive this year, period, uh, Wayne Van Nostrand um, benched 601 uh, at 50 years old, became the second person ever to bench over 600 pounds, uh, so 272 and a half kilos, at 50 years old or older. Uh, he joined Laszlo Mizaros. Uh So Laszlo, he's not like a, he's not really a household name in powerlifting, but he should be. Uh, Very accomplished bench press specialist. He's been doing the damn thing for 20 plus years at this point, I think. And at one point, I I think in 2013, his bench was top five all time. Um, So he never quite cracked that level of like, you know, Kirill Sarachev, Scott Mendelssohn, Like those were, he was a little bit before Kirill. Um but yeah he he was I think for a time the best raw bencher in the world but the people who came slightly before him he never quite broke their records um but I mean La- Laszlo is a bad man um so Wayne Van Nostrand joined him as the only other person to bench 600 plus at 50 years old or older um I had never heard of Wayne Van Nostrand before uh I just, like, searched a picture of him to see, like, what does someone who benches 600-plus at 50 years old look like? Dude's fucking huge. Like, he... And, and it's not even, like... And he has this big beard as well, but it's not one of those, like, swole, like, Santa-looking things because um, it is, like, a, a grayish-white beard because, like, he's too unbe- unbelievably huge for someone to even, like conceive of it as like a Jack Santa type thing. Dude's just fucking enormous. Um okay, so uh two more, moving back to deadlifts. Uh Dmitry Nasanov is another guy who also isn't really a household name in powerlifting, but should be. He is he's for my money, maybe the best deadlifter on the planet, uh like on a pound for pound basis. Um, and, and not like strictly pound for pound, like in terms of any sort of reasonable, fair scaling formula. But anyway, uh, Dmitry Nasanov has the all-time world record at, uh, 181 or 82 and a half kilos. He's pulled 400 kilos previously, which is, uh, 880 pounds. The next highest in that weight class is John Hack 799 or 362 and a half. So... You know, Not only is 400 kilos a lot of weight for anyone, um, it's an enormous amount of weight for someone who's 181 and he's 80 pounds ahead of anyone else that he's competing against. So that's wild in its own right. Um, but he recently did not break his record, but he went uh, 390 kilos, which is 860 pounds in a full meet. So the 400 kilos he did previously was in a deadlift only meet. Um, for, for like an intermediate level powerlifter, the difference between doing a full power meet and like a single lift meet probably isn't that big, but for really, really elite level powerlifters, like squatting a lot takes a lot out of you if you're then also hoping to pull a world record deadlift. (laughs) Um, so I didn't realize how good of a squatter Nasanov was as well. So again, keeping in mind the dude's 181, uh, he squatted 863 with wraps, which is, I mean, that's an elite squat in that weight class. Um, not quite as elite as the one we're about to talk about, but still, like, that's that's a crazy number at 181. Um, and his second attempt squat just, like, folded him in the hole. And that's another thing. Like, if you're planning on pulling a big deadlift, if you, like, just miss a squat, like, you miss groove it or whatever, or you can't quite grind it out, Uh, you know, that could take a little bit out of your deadlift, but if you just like get folded, it didn't look good. Like it looked like, I, like, I don't think anyone would have been surprised if he bombed after that. Uh, so second attempt squat looked, looked bad. Uh, he stayed in the meet and still went on to pull uh 390 or 860 at the end of the meet. And, um, he, (laughs) he also attempted 926, uh, I didn't see the video of that, but I mean, based on how 860 moved, 926 wasn't a crazy attempt. Like, the 860 was still a fucking speed rep, which is wild. Um, but he attempted 920, and and based on what I heard, he got it off the ground, but his grip went. Um, he posted a video, or a picture to Instagram where his hands were incredibly bloody. Um, so I think that's what happened to him, but... I, I mean, the, the things he's doing with the deadlift in that weight class are honestly mind-blowing. And even though he didn't break the record in this meet, he did set the record for highest deadlift in a full power meet, um, which kind of, that's kind of like an asterisk record, but whatever. Um, But I mainly just wanted to use the excuse to talk about him because he's so impressive and more people need to know about the guy. Uh, And then lastly, I just want to point out, we called our shot recently. Uh, I talked about uh, Mohamed Raisi, a Turkish guy posted some really big squats to instagram and i said within the next year i think he's going to take the world record in that weight class he was previously like 13th in the weight class but had only competed once or twice uh so that uh that episode where we talked about him came out on thursday he competed on saturday two days later and took the world record um, took down Tom Callis's squat in the 181 weight class with wraps. Uh, previous record was 788. He squatted 793, or 360 kilos. So he didn't quite break the 800-pound barrier, but uh, came damn close. And some some world records, especially in the squat, are a little dodgy because you know maybe depth is close but questionable. To my eye, he went convincingly deep. It was. A really really solid lift um so congrats to him and congrats to us for uh for calling our shot on that one
0: you know that's the one thing i get really annoyed about is that no one gives us credit for finding these just needle in the haystack one in a million type predictions that always come true like who could have possibly known that chase young was going to make the list of of heisman finalists if you listen to the podcast you did no one else did This is just another example. He
1: was super under the radar before that. Totally under the radar. I don't think people had even heard of Chase Young.
0: I think we put him on the map. So, like, the idea that, I mean, we're just getting negative review after negative review. Are people tired of winning? Are they tired of being right months before everybody else finds out? Well, I mean,
1: even after our scarily accurate prediction of the FDA clarifying CBD policy in, like, episode 2, no one has told us any federal policies they'd like us to see changed or they'd like to see changed or clarified. That's true. We have that power. Uh, people just don't trust us.
0: That actually, the CBD space has been very interesting in the news. I don't want to get into all the details, but it, it is, things are happening.
1: Didn't, um, didn't someone from like Kentucky or like Tennessee have a CBD store raided and shut down recently?
0: So the FDA fairly recently sent out a whole new batch of letters telling people, hey, guys, just a reminder, this isn't a supplement. Um, and then a couple of weeks, a week or two ago, I think, someone in Iowa had a CBD store. Okay, that was it. It was and Iowa. they were arrested and charged based on state-level laws. Um, you know, it, it was not a, a federal raid or anything like that. It was state-level stuff. But... It, it's it's an evolving space. It's something to keep an eye on. Okay, so um, recently we introduced a new segment called "Hot Off the Presses," where we give a little brief uh, discussion about something that like literally just came out. You know, pretty pretty new stuff. Um, and within the last few weeks, there have been a couple new papers we wanted to to briefly discuss and share with our listeners. Uh, so one was about effective reps, roughly. They didn't phrase it that way, but it, it, it has, uh, it applies to the idea of effective reps. The other one was about antioxidants and resistance training. So Greg, why don't we start off with the effective reps one?
1: Yeah. So, um, if you're, if you're unaware of or unfamiliar with the concept of effective reps, um, I wrote a article for stronger by science earlier this year that we can link, um, So that'll be in the show notes. And we've also previously discussed the concept on the podcast as well. So we can put a link to that timestamp in the show notes as well. But just for a very quick recap, the idea of effective reps is essentially that for for a rep to be effective at promoting hypertrophy, it needs to be close enough to failure. So um, in generally the... The most common model of effective reps that I've seen out there is Chris Beardsley's version. And within that effective reps model, uh, essentially the idea is that uh, the five reps preceding failure are um, going to have enough per fiber muscle tension, enough motor unit recruitment, et cetera, to be able to promote hypertrophy. So, you know, if you do a set of 10, the first five reps, the only reason you're really doing them is to get to the last five reps and then reps six, seven, eight, nine, and 10 all fairly equally promote a hypertrophic response. Um, and so like, a a, a corollary to the idea of effective reps is that, um, kind of in a vacuum on a per set basis, training to failure is going to be more effective than not training to failure. Um, a more sophisticated version will say like, well, maybe not training to failure. You could possibly like make a program where that can be beneficial because, you know, training to failure, maybe it's theoretically better on a per set basis, but it might also cause more fatigue. And so maybe you can accumulate more effective reps by staying a few, like a rep or two shy of failure. So you can do more reps, you can train more frequently, etc. cetera. But a very clear implication is that If you equate stuff, like if you say, we're going to do three sets, we're going to do three sets no matter what, um, training to failure should be more effective than stopping shy of failure. Um, So anyway, with that in mind, there's a study that came out recently from Lacerda and colleagues titled, is performing repetitions to failure less important than volume for muscle hypertrophy and strength? So if you want a very thorough breakdown of this paper, uh, Mike Zordos covered that in the issue of mass that will be coming out January 1st. Um, But the kind of quick and dirty version of it is uh, this study used a within-subject unilateral training design. Um, So essentially they were doing knee extensions. And so one leg would perform one program, the other leg would perform another program, um, that's actually a really, really good model for studying hypertrophy. It's not good for strength because you have the cross-education effect. Um, so that's worth keeping in mind. But, but with effective reps, you're worried about hypertrophy. Like that's what the model applies to. Um, so for, for hypertrophic stuff, it was a really good research model. Basically lets everyone serve as their own control. So you don't have to worry about uh, sampling error or anything like that. Um, And the way it was set up is the subjects trained, um, so like one workout they train one leg uh, in a failure condition, and in the next workout they would train the other leg matching for reps. So uh, they were doing three sets to start with, bumped it up to four midway through the program, Uh, but if doing three sets, if the failure leg got a total of 30 reps across those three sets, the non-failure leg, or the volume match leg, would just do 3 sets of 10. Um, So they would match the total number of reps performed, but um, the way that shook down is the failure leg would basically do more reps on the first set, uh, about the same number on the second set, and on, on the third set it would be more fatigued and get fewer reps, versus basically the same number of reps per set. So the way that shook down is that the failure leg trained either three three or four sets to failure, whereas the non-failure leg uh, first set uh, had about two reps in reserve on average. The second set had about one rep in reserve on average. Um, so nominally, they should have been doing about three fewer effective reps per session. Um, and so when you look at the results of this study, um, hypertrophy so they looked at both rectus femoris and vastus lateralis growth Uh, it wasn't statistically significantly different between groups but the nominal like non-significant differences did lean in favor of more hypertrophy in the uh, non-failure condition Um, and they also did an interesting analysis basically looking to see within each individual when comparing their like right leg to their left leg And just keeping in mind the average measurement error of the equipment they were using, basically for on an individual basis, how many individuals had one leg grow meaningfully more than the other, like more than the measurement error of the equipment. Um, And so, for uh, vastus lateralis hypertrophy, um, zero subjects had a meaningfully experienced meaningfully larger gains. In the failure condition, uh, failure and non-failure training caused similar hypertrophy in six of the subjects, and in four of the subjects, there were greater gains when not training to failure. Um, So again, this is just worth keeping in mind. On a group basis, still not large enough differences to be statistically significant, but a couple things do kind of lean in favor of non-failure in this study. So that's... That's worth keeping in mind because uh, if you go back and read the article we wrote about it, when looking at research where you, you basically are either comparing failure training to non-failure training with uh, sets matched or roughly matched, or you're comparing two non-failure conditions where one is training closer to failure than the other, so you know theoretically getting in more effective reps. Um, If you look at studies on untrained lifters, you can definitely make a case for the whole idea of effective reps and training to failure or closer to failure being more effective for promoting hypertrophy on a per set basis. Uh, Specifically, there are two studies that seem to show that pretty strongly. Um, One looking at the biceps from Martirelli and colleagues and the other looking at the quads from Godot back in like 2006 or so. But then if you look at the studies on trained lifters, the stuff that's out there just really doesn't support the concept of the effective reps model, and especially like training to failure or closer to failure, being better for hypertrophy on a per set basis. Um, Just to nuance that a little bit, like obviously it matters to some degree. We talked about this the last time we talked about effective reps. There's, There's a soft version and there's a hard version of the idea the soft version is that essentially each set does need to be kind of hard. Um, you know, if you can do ten reps with a particular weight, you're almost—I would say—with hundred percent confidence, you're going to grow more on a per-set basis doing eight reps per set than two if it's a weight you can do for ten. Uh, but then the question is like, is eight going to be worse than doing ten reps with a load you can move for ten reps? And there, I think the research is a lot more equivocal. And if I, if I was a betting man, I don't know if I would bet that one of those two would be better. Um, so that's kind of like the soft version of the idea. The hard version of the idea is that, yes, doing 10 reps with a 10 rep max load is going to promote meaningfully more growth on a per set basis than doing eight reps with a 10 rep max load. And so I, I think that the harder version of the effective reps concept does have less support. Um so like I said it did have some support with untrained lifters and less with trained lifters. This was another study on untrained lifters so that that calls the concept into question even more because that that is the population for which it had more support in the first place. Um So yeah. Uh I think that's about all I got for that study.
0: Yeah, especially you know we we've talked at great length about effective reps previously which we will go ahead and link that in the show notes. Now Another thing that came out recently, this has been a really active area of research, sp- specifically on the review side of things. So it, it's long been thought and kind of, uh, I mean, we've mentioned on the show that the kind of prevailing theory is that high dose antioxidants, particu- particularly vitamin C with or without vitamin E, uh, blunts training adaptations. And, and the where this idea started was more in the endurance training side of things with a few studies showing hey this kind of blunted some training adaptations we thought it would be beneficial you know because it would reduce muscle damage facilitate recovery reduce oxidative stress all that stuff so it started on the endurance side of things there were some individual studies coming out indicating hey this might blunt anabolic signaling Uh, if you do a really high dose of vitamin c before training it might blunt anabolic signaling in response to resistance training and might potentially blunt hypertrophy and strength gains as well. So it's one of those bodies of literature where there's not that many really well-done individual studies, but the prevailing understanding of the literature is, hey, this high-dose antioxidant stuff might be bad news, might blunt training adaptations. Now, in the last few weeks, or at least the last couple months, there has been a big narrative review paper that came out on the topic and there was also a meta-analysis on the topic that came out i mean i think just days ago maybe a week so um so you know it's something a person asked about it in the mass group one of the things i find fascinating is that the conclusions of the narrative review and the conclusions of the meta-analysis are divergent They, they conflict with each other so this is something we wanted to address on the podcast so greg antioxidants blunting training adaptations specifically for resistance training where are we at
1: yeah so um like eric said the the one of those reviews that i was personally the most interested in was the meta-analysis because narrative reviews are interesting right uh where if someone if someone is pretty objective and even though it's a narrative review they they do do a pretty systematic review of the literature and try to get everything in narrative narrative reviews can be really good and really helpful like there are a lot of high quality narrative re- reviews out there um but narrative reviews can also be used to essentially essentially as an editorial uh to you know push an idea that may not necessarily be super strongly supported um So honestly, I tend to not read narrative reviews, Uh, so I'm not calling the question of the the recent one on antioxidants into question. I just haven't read it. Um, Meta-analyses can also sometimes be misleading uh, based on inclusion criteria or... I mean, some meta-analyses are just really poorly done, Um, but with stuff like that, you can hopefully at least see through it a little bit better. Where if you look at the inclusion criteria, you're like, oh, well, this may not be appropriate or, you know, may not be the best group of studies to look at. Or you can look at the stats and be like, oh, they just, they did this wrong, if you know what to look for. Um, So I I tend to read most of the metas that come out. And so uh, there was a recent one by Clifford. Um, The title was The Effects of Vitamin C and E on Exercise-Induced Physiological Adaptations, colon. A systematic review and meta-analysis of randomized controlled trials, um, and so it was looking at the effects of vitamin C and E, uh, both of which are antioxidants. So vitamin C and E supplementation on changes in aerobic capacity, so like VO2 max, VO2 peak, uh, aerobic performance, so you know things like uh, like time trial performance, things like that, uh, lean body mass, and strength. And so um, this uh, meta-analysis was linked in the mass group, and someone was basically saying like, hey, I've heard people saying that uh, antioxidants, blunt muscle hypertrophy, uh, this meta was just published, so what gives? And so uh, that actually got me to (laughs) pull up the meta, read it through, download all of the studies that they used looking at resistance training to, to try to dig into this, to give a good answer to the question. Um, and I thought it would be possibly interesting for the podcast as well. And so, uh, just to start with, um, I'm not at all interested in the findings on aerobic capacity, aerobic performance, or strength. Um, like I, have heard people talking about, uh, antioxidant supplementation, blunting, um, endurance capacity, like that's, or, or endurance adaptations to training. Like, I know that that's an idea that people have talked about before, It's just not what I personally care about. Um, And I hadn't really heard anyone saying that uh, vitamin C and E supplementation would blunt strength gains. Um, So I don't really care about that all that much either. Mainly because, like, hypertrophy, to my view, is one of the factors that contributes to strength gains. But especially in shorter-term research, um, neurological adaptations, and just improving... Uh, technique and whatnot, especially in studies on untrained lifters, those are going to be the things largely responsible for most of the strength gains. And so if antioxidants blunt hypertrophy a little bit, I wouldn't necessarily expect that to negatively influence strength gains in the short to moderate term in a body of research mostly on untrained lifters. So I didn't care about aerobic capacity, aerobic performance, or strength. I zeroed in on the studies looking at uh, hypertrophy because that's 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 what I've heard people talk about antioxidant oxidant supplementation hindering, and that's that's the portion of the meta that I personally cared about the most. Um, and so, like I said, they were looking at changes in lean body mass. One of the things we've talked about on the podcast before is how changes in changes in lean body mass are probably correlated with actual muscle hypertrophy, but, you have a lot of lean body mass that is not skeletal muscle tissue. Um, and so especially like especially if you have a study where the only thing you're training is quads and you look at total body lean mass, you know, what are you going to add to your quads? Maybe, maybe a quarter kilo of muscle mass over the course of a study. Um, so that's really not going to move the needle on lean mass at all. And lean mass is just a less sensitive measure to muscle hypertrophy than actual direct measures of hypertrophy, like changes in muscle thicknesses, cross-sectional area, fiber cross-sectional area. Um, so the meta-analysis did find that vitamin C and E supplementation did not hinder gains in lean body mass um, in the studies they looked at, but I wanted to pull those up and see how many of those studies did actually assess changes in muscle mass. So actually looking at cross-sectional areas, muscle thicknesses, etc. cetera. Um, So there were nine studies in that meta that looked at changes in lean body mass. There were three that looked at uh, direct changes in muscle size. So again, thicknesses, cross-sectional area, etc. And there was one other study that I think might be useful to uh, podcast listeners. The other studies, the other five, just really aren't worth dwelling on, I don't think. So there were two studies that were four-week-long eccentric training studies. Four weeks isn't going to... Four, four weeks is is short for a strength study, and it's certainly too short for, for a hypertrophy study. And again, that, those two studies were just looking at changes in lean mass. Um, and then the other three studies... <laughs> I actually think... Uh, I'm not leveling accusations here but I'm pretty sure it was three papers from the same study, which isn't necessarily a bad thing if you're reporting different measures each time. And they did report some different measures each time, but uh, there were a lot of measures that were reported in all three papers. And and I, I'm quite confident it came from just one study that was run because it was a six-month-long training study, and the papers published were 2008, 2010, 2011. And... 80% of the measures were the same in each study, and the training program was the same in each paper. And no way in hell you're running three six month training studies back to back to back with the same training program and 80% of the same outcome measures. So I'm pretty sure that three of the nine uh, studies included in this in the lean body mass portion of the meta were just one study. <laughs>
0: Yeah, and just so listeners are aware, that that's the thing that when you're doing a meta, you'd really like to account for. You, you don't want to put the same result in three times, obviously. And if it's all from the same study, you have to mathematically account for that so that it's, you don't want three studies yanking your results in one direction for the meta-analysis when it was really just one group of people being observed, um, and I did notice in at least two of those papers, one was like a letter to the editor, which was n- didn't have a ton of detail in it.
1: However, kudos to Clifford and colleagues for finding a letter to the editor with data reported to include in a meta-analysis. Yeah. Like, th- that is indicative of an incredibly thorough lit search.
0: It is, yeah. But in two of those three papers, I did see that for certain measures that were overlapping, the placebo group, if memory serves... <laughs> had the exact same sample size and the same mean and the same standard deviation for yeah. certain variables. So it it would appear that there is some degree of mixing and matching within this data set. It would seem, um, it, unless there's, you know, y- yeah. sometimes numbers do weird things, I guess, yeah. but it, it looks that way.
1: Yeah, so, so regardless, uh, those five papers, the three that we're pretty sure are just one study and the two five-week eccentric training studies, None of them looked at direct changes in muscle size, and I just don't think they're that overly relevant in the first place. So of the studies that did directly assess changes in muscle size, uh, there was a 2014 study by Paulson and colleagues, a 2015 study by Bjornsson and colleagues, and a 2018 study by Dutra and colleagues. Um, And so in those studies, just taking them in order, the Paulson study... Um, It took a lot of measures, Uh, so it it had both an acute and a chronic component, and in the acute component, they found that antioxidant antioxidant supplementation did seem to interfere with some measures of anabolic signaling, so for example, uh, reduced phosphorylation of P70S6K um, and a couple other uh, like signaling proteins within anabolic pathways. Uh, however, total ubiquination levels after the session were lower, um, with antioxidant supplementation. And so u- ubiquination isn't a direct measure of, but it is correlated with muscle protein breakdown. Like basically proteins are u- ubiquinated to label them for, for breakdown. Um, so some anabolic signaling was higher with without antioxidants but markers of protein breakdown were also higher without antioxidants uh total muscle protein synthesis was similar both with and without antioxidants um so that's what they found in the acute portion of the study um and probably the most relevant thing that they looked at there was total muscle protein synthesis being similar between the conditions and uh you know that seemed to hold for chronic training adaptations as well. Um, they looked at uh, changes in um, MRI measured hypertrophy of I believe the quads and they also looked at changes in fiber cross sectional area both type 1 and type 2 fibers and antioxidant supplementation did not blunt hypertrophy over 10 weeks. So um, just keep that in mind. One study taking a couple different measures of hypertrophy antioxidant supplementation didn't seem to negatively affect growth so moving on to the 2015 study by Bjornsson um, it assessed so it it looked at several measures of lean mass but it also looked at changes in muscle thicknesses of the rectus femoris the biceps and the vastus lateralis after uh, I believe a 12-week training period And so in that study, uh, they found similar muscle growth in the biceps and vastus lateralis, but significantly more growth of the rectus femoris in the placebo group than the antioxidant group. So again, so far we have, I think, five measures of like direct measures of muscle hypertrophy across two studies. One of the five does show antioxidant supplementation, possibly blunting hypertrophy. And so uh, the last one is a 2018 study by Dutra and colleagues. Um, It looked at changes in muscle thickness in the quads after a chronic training intervention. And it also didn't find that um, muscle thickness increased to a lesser degree with antioxidant supplementation. So those are the three studies that, that we have that have directly assessed hypertrophy after antioxidant supplementation. And none of the three found that, or of the three, there was only one measure finding that antioxidant supplementation did blunt hypertrophy. There were like six other measures across the three studies that really found no meaningful effect. Um, so the the, uh, the only other study that is is possibly relevant here, which didn't directly assess uh, hypertrophy, but which used a train protocol. That's probably, it was like normal ass training. It wasn't just like single joint training, whatever. Um, it was a 2019 study by Dutra. Um, and so again, they didn't, they didn't look at changes in muscle thicknesses or cross-sectional area. They did just look at changes in lean mass and fat mass. Um, what they found in this study is that the, the antioxidant group didn't have significantly greater gains in lean mass and significantly larger changes in fat mass than the placebo group. But they did find that only the uh, placebo group had a significant increase in lean mass um, and a near significant decrease in fat mass as well. So uh, like, Pre to post, the gains were larger in the placebo or the gains were large enough to be significant in the placebo group and not the antioxidant group. But between groups, there wasn't quite a large enough difference for it to be statistically significant. Um, You can pull up that study. We'll have it linked in the show notes. Uh, It's a PubMed Commons paper, so it's, it's free to view for anyone. You can look at those bar graphs in the study and decide for yourself if the difference between groups is large enough to be potentially relevant. Um... So anyway, those are the four studies that are probably most relevant for the podcast listeners here. Um, And of them, really, you have one study with one out of three measures saying, oh, well, maybe antioxidant supplementation blunts growth. You have another study, the 2019 Dutra paper, where uh, depending on your perspective, maybe antioxidant supplementation uh, might might blunt some gains in lean body mass and decreases in fat mass, even though you would be perfectly justified to also argue that it doesn't because those differences weren't quite significant between groups. And then you have two studies where it's just a wash, uh, and antioxidant supplementation didn't seem to blunt hypertrophy. So my personal assessment of this literature, and you are free to disagree with it, is personally, I thought that... Um, keeping in mind that this isn't, this isn't stuff that I pay super close attention to. Um, so like I'd seen, I know I'd seen the, the, um, the Bjornsson study. That's the one that people always cite because it was the one where there is a measure showing a, a significantly smaller increase in muscle size with, uh, vitamin C and E supplementation. So I know I'd seen that one, Uh, I know I'd seen some of the acute studies showing that like, oh, maybe this like blunts some anabolic signaling. Um, And so my understanding of this body of literature is that we did have reasonably robust and consistent evidence showing that antioxidant supplementation blunted hypertrophy. When we actually look at the papers that are out there, though, um, it's not a consistent finding and the one the one paper that did find a significant effect in one out of three muscles, the impact wasn't huge. Um, it was a gain of like 16% in one group versus 11 in the other group. So you know, it's not like we're talking about it just completely squelching hypertrophy. Um, and so I, I think I think one, I'm now probably a little, I probably care a little bit less about antioxidant supplementation in general. Um, I I thought that it was something that did have, like, a pretty large and consistent effect with blunting hypertrophy. That doesn't seem to be the case uh, now that I've actually dug into the literature. So I apologize for previously making that recommendation in the past. Um, But what I also will say is that if you you just want to take, like, a better safe-than-sorry approach... I do think you'd probably still be better off not taking high dose antioxidants before and around training um, because the significant effects that do exist are antioxidant supplementation, blunting growth or potentially blunting growth. Um, unless you just have absurdly high oxidative stress levels at baseline, you're you're probably not gonna get anything from supplementing with antioxidants. So I, it's still not something I would recommend. Um, but I think it's, I think it probably has less of a negative impact or no negative impact relative to the pretty large and consistent negative impact that I previously thought it had.
0: Yeah. I mean, I'm not sure with my assessment, my conclusion is not fully formed yet because we mentioned like a million years ago, I was going to write an article about antioxidants and, uh, It was a million years ago and there's still no article. So that's a pretty fair assessment of exactly where I'm at with it. Uh, Not quite done and not super close, but still working on it. So I pretty much have just gotten to the point where I'm really going to dig into the whole body of literature when it comes to, does this, does this supplementation affect muscle damage, acute performance, and then chronic adaptations to different types of exercise? So I am going to touch on a little bit of aerobic stuff, I think. So I'm not really ready to say like, oh, looks like we are wrong, you know, go ahead and do a gram pre and a gram post with your vitamin C because I I kind of, my tentative conclusion is similar to yours where I'm trying to figure out, you know, so maybe the, maybe the downsides have been overstated or our confidence in those downsides have been overstated, but I'm still not sure what the upside is if you're not a person with a great deal of oxidative stress at baseline. Um, and so that's one of the things I intend to explore in more detail in the article, which should be out hopefully within like a reasonable time frame. I was gonna put an actual date on it, but I would regret it immediately. So <laughs> I, I, I am gonna work on pulling that thing together. Um, another thing that I'm gonna look into is the so a lot of this research was looking specifically at vitamin C with or without vitamin E. Um, the data, as it pertains to other antioxidants, one of the reasons the article's taking so long is because there are literally thousands of antioxidants that you could theoretically supplement with. Polyphenols, as a class of supplements, don't seem to have; they seem to look a little bit more promising as a supplement uh, tactic than vitamin C on its own. You-, you don't see from the literature I've reviewed already. I'm not completely done with that lit review. The literature I've seen so far would indicate there might be some upsides to polyphenol supplementation, and I haven't seen these types of downsides, versus with vitamin C, it looks like there's less upside and higher potential for downside, even if the downsides aren't very extreme or very consistent. So I'm still not at a point where I'm like, yes, vitamin C pre and post is a great idea, Um, but but I am shifting toward a, eh, it's not ideal, but, you know, it's probably not the end of the world. For now I kind of view it the way I view uh like post exercise protein timing. It's like you know, are you going to lose all your gains if you delay your post workout meal an hour or two? No, you're going to be fine. But all other things considered equal, you should probably eat after you train. You know what I mean? Like th- there's potential for upside and no potential for downside with that. So so that's kind of where I'm going to leave it until I'm ready to present that full article to the public with it, a fully
1: except in the inverse, right? What's for, that? So you you said you think of it like post-workout protein timing where, and in the case of protein timing, potential for upside, no potential for downside. You're saying you think of vitamin C and E supplementation as kind of the inverse of that, right?
0: Yeah, yeah. I see limited potential for upside and reasonable potential for downside. Right, yeah. yeah. I,
1: just just trying to make sure that that was clear on here.
0: Yeah, yeah. So that that's what I was getting at. Okay, so that does it for the um, hot off the presses segment. Now, um, you know, we, we talked about, you know, we're turning the page into 2020. Um, a lot of times, people use that time to really review their their habits and behaviors and say, like, here are some goals I want to attack in the year 2020. Maybe some New Year's resolutions of how I want to change my behaviors and habits. And so, I want to talk very briefly in a very practical sense. So, like, this is going to be a coach's corner segment about behavior change. Okay. So I always say on the podcast, once I get outside of my area of expertise, I try to talk less and less and less. And so this is an area where I certainly wouldn't claim to have uh, significant expertise. Uh, But it is something you know, whether you're trying to change your own habits, or maybe you have clients and you're trying to help them change some habits. uh, It's certainly quite useful to know. So I want to begin with an apology to Dr. Brian Fokt, uh, he taught me about behavior change as it pertains to health habits. Uh, a million years ago when I was an undergrad student, I swear I did pay attention at the time, but uh, I got a little bit rusty. I didn't retain all of it. So uh, Brian Folk, actually, uh, when I had his class, we, we chatted, he had a background in powerlifting and, and has since gotten into competitive bodybuilding. So uh, there's maybe a 1% chance he listens. So if so, hey, Dr. Folk. Uh, but if not, sorry, I, I forgot a lot of my health behavior stuff. So, um, for this segment, I, I kind of had to brush up significantly. There is a nice article I found that's very useful and, and kind of very, uh, approachable if you don't have experience in the, the area of behavior change. It's very straightforward, very concise. It's, uh, I'm going to link it in the show notes, but it's, it's on the blog for the, uh, for NASM, the National Academy of Sports Medicine, um, Little, extremely minor conflict of interest disclosure. Mass does offer CEUs for NASM, but we don't have any other relationship. We don't like get paid by them. I don't have any certifications with them. So I'm not like signing off and endorsing every single thing they ever do. And I have no uh, interest in necessarily promoting any of their stuff. But I just found this blog post article that was really concise and and kind of if you're a person who's trying to change your, your habits or help clients change their habits, this is really useful stuff. And what the article does is it goes through a couple um, models in terms of how we understand behavior change. Basically, they provide different frameworks, which are all used in, in the beha- like health behavior research in terms of how do people actually go about successfully or unsuccessfully changing their behavior. So I want to very briefly summarize a few of these models, uh, which are really quite helpful when, when you start to Think of like how am I going to effectively change my habits or help a client change theirs. So, the first one is the health belief model. And this model basically focuses on how attitudes and beliefs uh, explain and predict behavior. So, the, the, the general underlying concept of the theory is that you typically desire to avoid bad stuff. And you, you generally, if you believe that you can take a specific action to achieve the goal of avoiding bad stuff, That's likely to motivate you to actually implement some positive changes in your health behavior. So um, it suggests that the practice of engaging in health promoting behavior is explained by uh, your beliefs about health problems, the perceived benefits of actually taking action, your perceived barriers to taking that action, and in addition, your self efficacy. And self efficacy is basically you. I'm very much oversimplifying, but you believing that you really do have the ability to implement these changes that you're talking about. So, in this particular theory, another factor is that a stimulus or a cue to action is typically present. So, usually the way they ex- explain that in in like coursework is someone goes to the doctor, the doc- the doctor goes, "Oh my god, like you, you know, your cholesterol's off the charts. That's your cue to action." Um, and so now you believe you're you're susceptible to this negative thing. You've got your call to action. Now you believe your ability to affect that, and you're going to start implementing changes. And the five key concepts here, one is perceived suscepti- susceptibility. So basically you believe or your client believes that they are truly at risk for some kind of negative outcome. Perceived severity, which means it's not just a bad outcome. It's a pretty serious bad outcome. Perceived benefits would mean, you know, I believe that if I do undertake uh, this this course of action to address this issue, I think there's going to be something beneficial there. Certainly perceived barriers are a concept that comes up, which is, you know, your perception of things between you and successfully changing that behavior. And then as I mentioned, the cue to action. Now, this is just one of many health, health behavior models or behavior change models it does have some challenges or limitations so this particular model has limited application for people who don't actually feel susceptible to a bad thing or lack a, a cue to action so the, the you know if you're trying to change your behaviors to go from a pretty good bodybuilder to an exceptional bodybuilder th- this isn't really explaining what's going on there right there's there's no like bad thing that that's kind of giving you a call to action of like wow i really got to get my act together Another issue with this model is it doesn't really consider other things like economic stuff, environmental factors, social factors. And that brings me to number two, which is social cognitive theory. And the whole premise here is that uh, our behavior results from continuous interactions between ourselves, the person, our behavior, and our environment. And so uh, this basically indicates that behavior is a deliberate process where we seek positive outcomes and avoid negative ones. And like I said, one of the key factors is considering some of these social factors, environmental factors, and things like that. Another factor uh, in this model, again, what you see is that self-efficacy is huge. And it, it also, on the topic of social factors, it acknowledges the fact that we certainly learn from our own experience, but we also observe the actions of others and we see the outcomes that that come to those individuals and we start to really shift our own behaviors and our understanding of behaviors based on what we see in the environment as well Um, another important thing it points out is that certainly the environment can affect a person's behavior uh, the environment they find themselves in but it also acknowledges that people can alter their uh, their environment so you can actually use that in both directions you know you might find okay I've got some environmental barriers that are between me and my goals, but you can also change your environment uh, to make it more compatible with your goals. So the idea here is that self-efficacy is is really the main cornerstone here. It's going to influence our outcome expectations from what we expect based on what we observe if we really change these things. Um, Self-efficacy can affect uh, kind of our social factors that influence our behavior. These all can affect our goals. And the whole combination of factors really do lead into behavior. So to to put it in a nutshell, obviously, you know, it's a big line of research when it comes to social cognitive theory. But the idea is that self-efficacy is absolutely critical and our ability to actually change behavior is going to depend on the combination of self-efficacy, what we expect in terms of outcomes, uh, you know, the, the social environment in which we find ourselves and ultimately our goals. Um, another one I want to mention, I think this is the last one I have here is the theory of planned behavior. And so the theory of planned behavior is, is one of the most widely used when it comes to exercise, when it comes to these models of, of behavior change, The the four main factors that would affect behavior change in this model, number one is attitude. So that that's just whether or not you view performing this behavior as positive or negative. Number two is intention or our willingness to actually do it. I mentioned sub- subjective norms earlier, and that basically, per- uh, that basically pertains to perceived social pressures. And I also mentioned perceived beh- behavioral control, and that is the perceived ease or difficulty when it comes to actually performing that behavior. So you can operationally think of it as being pretty similar to self-efficacy. And even within these within these four main factors that that are affecting behavior change, the two strongest ones really are intention and perceived behavioral control. so you've got to be willing to make the change and you have to actually believe uh, that if you do make that change it, it has uh, you know some type of positive influence down the down the road um, and so one of the challenges is that the link obviously between intention and behavior change is not a perfect link, you know? So these models aren't perfect. They're just frameworks for understanding how people start to initiate behavior change. And, you know, one of the key challenges with this model is that there are plenty of people that have really good intentions, but they simply fail to carry them out. Um, so, so that's why, you know, some of these other models are quite helpful to use. These models aren't ex- uh, mutually exclusive. They're really just competing frameworks of, of how we understand getting people to make positive health changes uh, or changes that are more compatible with their goals. Now, finally, there's the trans-theoretical model. And this is, you know, the previous three that I talked about were really theories pertaining to behavior change. This one, they specifically say it's not a theory. It's just a framework that describes a way that all these other theories can fit in. You can kind of mix and match them within this trans-theoretical model. And I don't want to get too far into it, but the real take-home point of the trans-theoretical model is that there are five stages to change. And that one of the really key things when it comes to inducing positive behavior change and switching your behaviors to make them more compatible with your goals, one of the key things is making sure that you're actually in a place where you are ready to begin that change. So there's these five stages, the first is pre contemplation. And that basically means within the next six months, or or longer, you have no intention to actually change your behavior. Next is the contemplation stage, which means you or your client wants to change your behavior within the next six months, but you haven't acted on it yet. The next stage is preparation, which means within the next 30 days, you or your client really do intend to to make that change. The fourth step is the action stage. And that basically means you or your client within the past 30 days did begin initiating that particular behavior change. And then finally, it's maintenance. And that means you've been maintaining this change for more than six months. Now, some people, they they put in uh, the relapse stage as part of the stages. I'm going to be optimistic and positive and say, yeah, relapse happens, but maybe let's not plan on it being a critical part. But one of the really cool things about this particular model is that it does at least acknowledge the fact that progressing through these stages is cyclical. It's not linear and it's not a one-way thing. You know, you can go forward and backward between these steps. Sometimes you, you get through the action phase, you are in the maintenance phase and you have a relapse and you find yourself at an earlier stage within this cyclical process. And what's nice about that is you didn't like try a thing and lose you made your way five steps up through the, these, these different stages, and you, maybe you fell back too. But, but you're still within this cycle of these stages of change, and you can still go back to the drawing board, reinitiate some of those changes, and get back to that maintenance phase that we would like to be in. So those are a few uh, theories or models about how academics study changing health behavior. So if you or your clients are thinking, okay, it's the new year, it's time to really change things up. These are good frameworks to get you thinking about what are some of the aspects of of the environment or when when we talk about these goals, are we framing them in a way that actually is conducive to helping somebody change their behaviors and reach their goals. And if you look at all of these in totality, there are some overarching themes. Number one, self-efficacy is enormous. Okay. So we need to really, first of all, understand that there's a relationship between this behavior we're changing and our goal. And then secondly, we need to really believe that, that we have the ability to make that happen. Number two, you've got to consider environmental and social factors that can facilitate or hinder your progress. And along those lines, you have to recognize that our environment influences us, but we can also change our environment to, to some degree to make it more conducive. So getting back to those overarching themes, like I said, self efficacy is huge, you have to consider environmental and social factors and how you can influence those how they can influence you. Uh, in addition, generally speaking, people really need to be ready to change before they effectively do make changes. And then finally, behavior change is cyclical, not linear. So there, there are relapses that tend to happen. Uh, but that doesn't mean you're all the way back to square one, it just means you went from, you know, the most advanced stage to a slightly less advanced stage, but you know, you don't have to implode the whole thing and start over. Okay. Now that that's a good transition. We are about out of time this week. Um, so to play us out, we have one parting message for, uh, for 2019. So not to get preachy, but you know, there are going to be a lot of people entering the gym that that are strangers to the gym when when January comes around. I, I don't know if this is an international thing, but I know in the United States for sure, New Year's resolutions are big. The gym, uh, gym attendance tends to absolutely skyrocket in, in the month of January. And most importantly, the people that are kind of flooding into the gyms around this time of year are going to be people that are less familiar with the gym, less comfortable in the gym, maybe a little bit, they feel a little bit out of place, potentially a little bit intimidated. So I remember back in the day when I was just kind of a turd and I'd be like, oh, this sucks. The gym used to be empty. Now there's a bunch of people, you know, this is my turf. And now there are people who don't belong invading it. That's just a really horrible way to think about it. Um, So when you go to the gym and you see there's all these people and you have to wait a little longer for a squat rack or whatever the case is, just remember, you know, be nice to people out there, Uh, be encouraging, be welcoming, especially if there are people in your network, your friends and family that are just getting into fitness. Just remember, uh, you know, be supportive and they don't have to start with like the optimal perfect approach. Okay. All they need to do is have motivation, excitement, and the intention to do it. So like, I know it's really easy when you get into the whole evidence-based circle of things in fitness. It's really easy when someone does something that's like 93% optimal to be like, oh, idiot. Here's how you get up to a <laughs> hundred, you know? And and like, just just recognize that, that that has a, sometimes it's perceived as being helpful. Sometimes it just really tears people down and, and makes them have a generally like, less enjoyable experience when they're trying to branch out and get into this stuff.
1: And the last thing they need is second-guessing themselves. And if you nitpick every part of their plan, that's going to make them second-guess themselves.
0: Yeah, so the, the the thing I usually use as my guiding principle with this kind of thing is I never shoot down things. If they, if they do no harm, they cost very little. You know, just because they're not necessary or they're not like 100% ideal and optimal... Just, you know, if it's something that does no harm, it's not costing them anything. It's not a huge uh, financial investment or labor investment. Just let them enjoy their excitement for the gym. They're not doing any harm. And eventually, once they're really into it and they seek out additional guidance and structure, that's where you'd say, Hey, I noticed you do this. Uh, since you asked, you could probably have a much more enjoyable workout if you did this instead. Or or you might be achieving your goals more rapidly if you did this instead of that. So, you know, be supportive, be encouraging. Don't tear people down because they're only 85% correct with their approach. Uh, people will generally approach you as long as you let them know that you are available to offer support and help. But, you know, don't overstep that. D- don't start micromanaging people. And, and like Greg said, d- don't start making them second guess themselves the biggest step is just having the motivation, having the excitement and enjoying the initial stages of the process and everything else from there tends to, tends to grow. Okay. So I think that does it for our final episode of 2019 on the other side of the music. We have a fantastic inter- interview with Mike to talk up. Mike Mike is reactive training systems, right? Uh, he's, he's got to have like a world championship at some point, right?
1: Yeah. He's, uh, he's won IPF worlds multiple times. Um, won the world games easily one of the most successful ipf coaches uh currently and in history like I, I don't think he's overtaken Shaco when it comes to like pumping out medalists but they they have a metal factory over there at rts like their athletes like win nationals win worlds plays highly all the time um really really bright guy really good coach uh has had a incredible lifting career in his own right he's the type of guy that if you're not if you don't listen to him and pay attention to him i think less of you as a person like mike's mike's the fucking man
0: yeah i mean i first met him this past year at the european powerlifting conference um you guys were chatting in like the hotel lobby and it, it was really fascinating to just hang around and listen to him talk training i think um i, I think people are really going to enjoy the uh, the interview so it's a great way to end the year Uh, As Greg said way earlier, about an hour and a half ago, we will see everyone in, I think it was January 16th we return?
1: Uh, I believe so, yes. Yeah,
0: so we'll be coming back January 16th with our new format. We're excited. We hope you will join us. Take care. Have a great new year.
1: All right, Mike Tashir. Thank you for coming on.
2: Thanks, man. Glad to be here. How's life? Good, good. I feel like I've been running around all over the world a little bit. I have, but I'm back home now and and trying to get my kids over jet lag, which is uh, about <laughs> as fun as it sounds. So, running around the world mostly
1: for powerlifting meets, or has has there been anything else uh, other than IPF worlds?
2: Well. Yeah, so the big thing, well, I guess there was uh, the U.S. Nationals, but after that, um, er, my wife's in the Nationals, Air Force. I mean, sorry. Yeah, they they kind of, <laughs> mm-hmm. there's a bunch of them, right? But uh, My wife's in the Air Force, so um, occasionally we'll have something go on uh, for that as well. And since I'm mobile, if we can kind of keep the family together, then we'd like to do that. So I gotcha. uh, in this case, it was, we had a thing in Alabama for a couple weeks and yeah. Good deal, man. Um, so
1: your, your lifters, I, I think I saw on Instagram between single lift and, um, and just like overall one, something like 11 gold medals and close to like 20, 25 total medals, right?
2: Uh, Nationals or I'm I'm not sure what we did at nationals, uh, but we usually have a pretty, pretty good time at worlds, uh, which would have been in, in June. So uh, that's probably the one (laughs) that we uh, uh, were talking about, but uh, yeah, yeah, we have had a pretty good time this year. Um, uh, Some unexpected uh, high performances, you know, and that's kind of one of the interesting things I think about like actually, showing up and, and going through the, the whole competitive experience, you know, sometimes things don't go exactly the way that you would expect on paper. And uh, a, a well executed game plan can make the difference, you know, so we were able to put some people on the podium that we didn't really expect to be there at first. But uh, that's always fun. That's a lot of fun when that happens.
1: Was that more them hitting bigger numbers than you thought they would hit or their competitors not performing quite the
2: way you anticipated they would? So a little bit of both, um, probably more often than not, uh, if someone else makes a mistake, uh, you avoiding mistakes is kind of how, how those things shake out, you know? Um, we have a pretty good idea of a lifter's top end when they show up. And I would say it's pretty uncommon for them to, to just totally blow that away and do something unexpected on meet day. Um, I think it's more common that you end up dialing things down. Um, but that's because you're adjusting those expectations, you know, up to just a couple days before the meet a lot of times. Mm Um, so usually, it's someone else's error and, and it's like, Oh, well, we can capitalize on this by not making mistakes. And, and you might play the attempt selection two and a half kilos more conservative than you otherwise would just to make things a little bit more of a sure thing. Or, you know, there's different ways to, uh, to, to get into the the strategy of it. You know, and actually, uh, Avi Silverberg did a really great job this year, uh, during the world championship of kind of going through the play by play. Uh, and it's, it's kind of like powerlifting, like the nerdiest kind of powerlifting, I think, because, Mm -hmm. uh, like where the strategy really comes into play in the gamesmanship, it's only really relevant if the competition is, is rather tight. And most of the time that's only happening at, you know, the, the really high level meets, you know, U uh, S nationals, it'll, it'll happen occasionally. And then at worlds, it seems to happen quite often. And it can actually be pretty fun to watch if you know what you're looking for.
1: So what are, what, what are some examples of that? Just so, just so the, the listeners are kind of
2: on the same page here. Gotcha. Yeah. So I would say the, where strategy comes into play the most in, in a powerlifting meet is definitely around the deadlift for the squat and the bench. You're just trying to build your total, you know, make all three squats, get as close as you can uh, to your to your maxes. You know, but when it comes to the to the deadlift, you can be looking at other competitors. Uh, You'll know what you need to pull to move into second place or to if you're already in second place, maybe you're defending against somebody else who's trying to to surpass you. Uh, Things matter. Like what order are you pulling in? you know, uh, the person with the bigger deadlift has an advantage because they get to pull last. Um, so you know exactly what you need to pull things like, uh, changing your third attempt deadlift and knowing the rules around that they matter. Um, knowing exactly what you need to, to put on the bar to, you know, go for a win or go for a podium spot that that's a a big deal. Um, and and that's also kind of where coaching, gets to be really stressful too. Um, a lot of times you'll see coaches back there furiously uh, doing math and you know doing these calculations to try to figure out, okay, if this person makes their third deadlift, uh, then we'll need this, but I expect them to put in a change and they'll probably change it to that in which case we'll need to put in our change of our own you know and you're trying to anticipate these things because it's all happening rather quickly. So Mm -hmm. I say it's, it's like the nerdiest kind of powerlifting coaching because it's like fast math problems, you know, (laughs) and with a bit of anticipation of, of, well, they, they called for a 10 kilo jump and I don't think they've got it, you know, so we're gonna, Mm -hmm. uh, we're gonna play it a little bit safer. and, And really if you have a smaller deadlift, so you don't have the advantage of pulling last, then it's a, it's a lot more stressful, I would say, because, uh, now you've got to guess at what the other person can pull and, and you've got to push them as far as you can, you know? Yeah. So uh, it, that's that's fun. It, it only happens occasionally, but when it happens, it's, it's a lot of fun. I gotcha. That, that makes a lot
1: of sense. So we, uh, we, we've gotten a little bit ahead of ourselves. Um, so just, I, I assume most people listening to this know who you are. But for the the handful of poor souls who don't, um, just introduce us to Mike Tishier. How did you get started (laughs) in the sport of powerlifting? What's your background? Uh, Why should certainly anyone who's interested in powerlifting know about you and your work?
2: I got started in powerlifting uh, when I started lifting weights for football uh, when I was in high school. And I would say I was interested in lifting weights even before that. But uh, that's when most American boys at least uh, start to, to get into it more seriously. And this also happened to be uh, kind of the early days of the Internet. And I remember um, typing in powerlifting.com because powerlifting was just a word I had heard sometime. I don't I didn't even know what it was and then discovered, oh, it's a sport it consists of squat bench and deadlift. Oh wait, you can do training that's less than five reps. I had no idea, you know, and, and I just really self-taught from the beginning. Um, even, even as a freshman in high school, I remember showing up to the first day of like football, uh, weightlifting, you know, and, and walking up to the coach and being like, coach, I wrote my own program, you know, and I handed in this, <laughs> Concoction of what it, I mean. What does a high school freshman come up with, you know, that has no access to information other than like muscle magazines, you know? And I hand him these like things that I had printed out. And thankfully, he looked at it and, and I guess was just like, Hey, here's a kid who's enthusiastic about lifting weights. Go with it, you know? And he let me do my thing and I had a blast. I was good at it. Um, I got stronger. Um, and it kind of took off from there and like, that was, you know, the early times when I got into, uh, I went to the Air Force Academy, uh, for college and they had a powerlifting club. Uh, I pretty quickly took over, uh, being the, um, uh, cadet in charge of the powerlifting club and was kind of the de facto coach. Um, I was writing training and whatnot for, the other members of the club and um you know going to meets wrapping knees and you know this was equipped lifting um and also competing myself and uh, that's where i won my first junior world championship in 2006. after i left um i learned a lot as a coach of that club team and something that people were saying a lot back then Uh, was that you have to learn how to listen to your body. This is a thing that you just have to do if you want to train like an advanced lifter. Uh, All the advanced lifters do it. Okay, great. How do I do that? Well, nobody can tell you. It just takes like 10 years and you just figure it out. And I thought, well, that's a really terrible answer. you know. (laughs) So I started just being very observant of the things that I was um, experiencing as a lifter because I was nearing that, Kind of ten years of barbell experience time frame myself, and oh by the way, literally never stopped reading about lifting weights. You know anything that I could get my hands on, whether it was books or articles or you know uh, websites, whatever. You know I was reading constantly, and um, something that people were talking about, uh, and this would have been like Jim Wendler time frame when five, three, one and whatnot was just starting to get really popular. Um, and Jim was still working for elite FTS. Um, a lot of people were talking about leaving a rep in the tank, you know, and it's, it's funny now because you talk to lifters and, and it's such a different experience, but leaving a rep in the tank was like a landmark concept to, to most guys who lifted weights. Like, what do you mean? You stop before you can't do anymore. Like, I, I don't know how to do that, you know? Uh, so it was like this concept of lever rep in the tank. And uh, this was also during a time frame when the book Super Training was held up as, as like the training Bible. And and I was trying to penetrate that impenetrable work. Uh, but uh, my my hot
1: take on Super Training is that it's very appropriate to call it the training Bible because much like the Bible everyone says it's their favorite book, but no one's
2: actually read it. <laughs> and like, and you can come away I, with I, lots I of different know. interpretations of, of <laughs> what's in that exactly. book. Exactly.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I can think of hundreds of people that put super training on like the top of their, oh, if you're into training, you need to read this book recommendation list. But vanishingly few people who ever actually like pull out, quotes or information from super training to put in
2: articles. And I think yeah. that
1: that's very telling. <laughs>
2: yeah. Yeah. That's a really good point, actually. And I mean, I've called people out on it occasionally, like, oh, really, you, you've you read super training. And more often than not, they double down like, oh, yeah, yeah, I read it. And I'm like, you don't read it. <laughs> you can't like you could study it and you could like go section by section line by line in some cases and try to clean something from it. But it's, it's, I don't know. It's it's funny how things have changed because information now is just so much more accessible, you know? Mm -hmm.
0: Can I ask a a question? So I've never even pretended to read super (laughs) training. What makes it so like you said, you don't read it. What what does that mean?
2: Well, it's I guess it's just like a text, you know, like you, you wouldn't, you wouldn't read a, you wouldn't read it like you would read most books on training where, well, here's page one. Let me start there and just go through it. I think you would, you would suffer some sort of health event, you know, (laughs) with, uh, just trying to do that, but it's, it's very dense and it's not, it's only like loosely tied together. I would say it's not like a narrative format uh, where it's, it's building an argument from the beginning through the middle to the end. It's yeah. It's constructed like a text.
0: Okay. That makes sense. Yeah.
2: Well, the, the thing I came across from super training that I thought was useful uh, was a discussion on RPE uh, rate of perceived exertion and, and how the, the Borg scale worked uh, which I thought, Hey, that's really interesting. You know, I wonder how that applies to lifting weights and just kind of put together these two concepts where people were talking about leave a rep in the tank, uh, and this concept of grading your, your effort. And I thought, well, you know, you could leave one rep in the tank or two, three, four, you know, if you ain't first you're last. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and that's kind of where the original, uh, RPE chart that, that I started talking about and teaching came from. And, um, that I would say really started taking off in the 2008 timeframe. And since then, um, I continued to compete until just a couple years ago and, and did quite well, went to a lot of world championships, uh, and I won the world games in 2009. Um, but ever since 2008, I would say I've, become gradually more and more coach, mm-hmm. you know, and, uh, at this point for the last several years, it's been almost entirely coach. You know, I'm still lifting weights, but, uh, uh, I've stepped back from competing myself.
1: That makes sense. So uh, other than winning the world games, which I, I assume you would list that as your biggest accomplishment as an athlete, what are, um, what are some of the things you've done in the sport that you're the most proud of? And just so, our listeners know, what are some of your biggest lifts, both, uh, raw
2: and single ply? Let's see in single ply. Uh, that's where I started. My best squat was 903 pounds. Uh, my best bench was 633 pounds and I never competed, uh, equipped in the deadlift. I never got anything out of deadlift suits. So, uh, my best deadlift in competition was 843 pounds. Um and then my other raw, my raw squat was 785 or so. And my best raw bench was four hundred and eighty pounds. Um yeah, which believe it or not used to be a, a good bench press, but then <laughs> it's like everyone else figured out how to bench. <laughs> Man. But yeah. Yeah, it was definitely most well known for for my deadlift. Uh deadlifting like you said, other than World Games, I would say Pulling eight forty three was uh, definitely one of the highlights. That
1: makes sense. Um, so okay, let, let's get into uh, let's get into some of the concepts that you're most well known for these days. So you mentioned um, your use of the reps and reserve based RPE scale. I think that's still probably the first thing that comes to mind for people when they think Mike Desheer and reactive training systems. Um, so. I'm curious, just in general, because, you know, you, you see how ideas catch on and then morph and then people start going their own ways with them. What are your or have there been any like applications or uses of your RPE concept that you didn't foresee when you put it out into the world? And has it kind of been a double edged sword in some way, like people kind of putting your name on? ideas or concepts, which you personally wouldn't
2: support. Yeah. I mean, I I didn't expect it to become the meme that it has been, (laughs) to be honest, you know, like, uh, I don't think it's a bad thing at all. Like, I I think it's kind of funny, kind of cool actually, but, uh, um, I definitely didn't foresee that happening. Um, and then uh, as far as like training ideas, I, I, I suppose not really because I, I don't try to lay claim to the, to the idea, you know, like I don't really think RPE is, is mine, you know? Um, although I've, I've gotten into some conversations where people kind of make that assumption. They they act as if uh, anyone using an RPE program is using an RTS program, my program, you know, and that's not the same thing. Like, it, it's a concept that's seen much much wider adoption than than just little old me, you know. Um, so, I mean, I do see training practices that make use of the concept that I think are kind of, I guess, in error. You know, like I, I alluded earlier uh, to the idea of leaving a rep in the tank um, was kind of a new idea for a lot of people at the time uh, what this would have been early two thousands at least in, in kind of the online circles that I was in, it seemed like a new idea uh, to a lot of people. Uh, People were constantly being told that they, they need to, you know, back off the effort, you know, they would recover better and whatnot. But now it seems like things are very different from that. Uh, Especially in, powerlifting training, it's pretty common to see people training at very sub-maximum RPEs. Uh, And I've coached a number of lifters, you know, more recently who, who do have recovery issues. If we go into what I would have normally considered like a moderate RPE range, like eights, you know, nines, eight and nine RPE, I don't think is, is all that crazy, you know? And I get questions a lot like, how would you expect to recover from, you know, multiple multiple AMRAP sets a week? Well, an AMRAP sets a 10 RPE set, you know, maybe you're leaving the reps open ended, but it's one set, you know, it's only a problem if, you know, maybe if the program's not designed to support it or something like that, like I could see where it would be a problem, but it seems like now we've. It's more common to come in contact with this mindset where, oh, I did a a 10 RPE set. I should be wrecked for a week, which is funny because, again, go back to the early 2000s. It wasn't 10 RPE sets. It was 90 percent intensities. You know, oh, I touched a 90 percent weight. I'm going to be demolished for a week. You know, people don't think that as much anymore, but it's like the high RPE work. You know, have you do you see similar things? No, I, I definitely do. And it,
1: it makes me laugh because people are like, oh, you did a 10-RPE set, probably going to be wrecked for a few days. It's like, nah, dude. Like, that's just what we used to call training. We used to do a dozen of those in a workout and train two days later. Like, it's just how things were. Um, yeah, I didn't know any better, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I- exactly. Like, I mean, the, the idea of, like, if you are leaving a... Re- so like I remember when that got popular and it, it was kind of one of those things where like, unless you're doing like dynamic effort method, uh, like West side style, that was like the only time it was even justified to leave reps in the tank. Uh, so like I, yeah. I remember needing to be sold on leaving a rep in the tank for any set ever. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so it's completely different now. I, I I'm yeah. just, I'm just curious. um, to what degree do you think that that's uh, kind of the result of how people train? And to what degree do you think it's like just expectancy effects? So, you know, like, do, do you think people like legitimately could recover from RP 9, 10 work, be just fine, uh, but it's all in their head? Or do you think it's just like they've always trained with such submaximal RPs? it is just physiologically wrecking them. Like, like obviously it's probably some degree of both, but which which do you think just from working with a lot of athletes, which do you think is like the main driver
2: there? I've got to think that a lot of it is expectancy. Um, and, and I don't know how we could separate like what component of it is, is because of belief and what component of, of it would be there even, even without that belief structure, I'm I'm not sure how to separate those things. But I certainly hope that it's malleable, because I I think you get locked in to such a narrow training paradigm. If you can't ever reach into those, you know, eight, nine, ten RPE zones, like well, what do you what do you do training wise? So so you're Rather restricted, you know, you're going to be doing lots of volume at submaximal efforts. And where do you go from there? You know, you have to continue to crank up the volume. Uh, and then what? You know, at least if you can uh, reach into those higher RPE sets, it it can remain time. Training can remain time efficient for a lot longer, you know, and even if there's nothing physiological that happens which i just can't i can't get behind the idea that there's just no difference you know if, if you if you match volume uh between uh, people who are training at really low rpes and people who are training at high rpes that it, it would just be the same uh i've seen people over time of course and sometimes it's it's a long period of time but uh be capable of of grinding out weights better uh, you know, you'll watch somebody do a, a maximum attempt and you can chalk it up probably as as something um, like a motor learning thing. You know, if you're not prepared mentally to, to fight with the weight, then, you know, you're just going to fail quickly, right? Whereas if you're prepared for it, uh, then you can grind through it and maybe finish a lift that you wouldn't have otherwise been able to finish. And I think training at higher RPE is a way to prepare for those things. So it's just, it seems really limited to me uh, to just not even have that in the arsenal. No, I I gotcha. So with that in mind, um,
1: and also kind of circling back to the idea of how things have changed over time, something that I've been... I guess like stewing on, I I don't think saying worried about would be the right way to phrase it, but something that's just kind of been in the back of my mind is, do you think that maybe newer lifters these days are better at using RPEs because it's a concept they've, you know, kind of grown up with and come up in the sport with? Or do you think that they're possibly worse at using RPEs than maybe you know, folks just learning about it five years ago or eight years ago would have been simply because they don't have that prior experience of going to failure and really knowing what one or two reps shy of failure feels like. So do you do you think just generally, like when people are are exposed to the concept or maybe start working with you or one of your coaches, do, do you find that they're getting better at using RPE than maybe they were a few
2: years ago or are they struggling more? So... I would really, I, I wish I could tap, you know, somebody like uh, Ross or Jim, uh, and ask them because they onboard a lot more, uh, a lot more clients than I do these days. Uh, so my sample is going to be really biased. I think
0: mm-hmm.
2: what I see is that it looks like people are generally fairly competent at using this. I mean, outside of of obvious jokes because there's, there's plenty of RPE jokes, which is weird for its own reasons. Right. But, um, it seems like people are fairly competent at, at using, uh, the scale. Um, although again, you know, the people that I'm focused on, it's probably not a representative sample, you know? So I, I wish I could ask uh, Ross or Jim about it, you know, cause they're going to have uh, probably a different perspective, than I would. I know that they've mentioned to me needing to kind of correct people on RPE, uh, where I tend to not have to do that very much. You mm-hmm. know, like, well, hey, look, I know you said that was a nine, but it really looked like a seven. Yep. You know, uh, and it, you, you do see both types. You see some people who are dramatically underrating, but you also see plenty of people who are pretty dramatically overrating. Uh, so, yeah, yeah, I, I think you could probably argue it either way. I mean, my experience has, has been, you know, like I said, but yeah. No, fair enough. So, all right, just kind
1: of shifting gears a little bit. Um, something else that you're becoming more well-known for, concept you put out, I think, a couple years ago at this point, um, is emergent strategies. Uh, I, I don't think this has gotten quite as much reach as reps and reserve base RPE has. So just to kind of fill our audience in on it, what is is like the concept and the basic practice of using emergent
2: strategies? So the intent goes back to individualizing training programs. We have this sense that you need to do you would like to do the very best training program that you could that's that's custom built for you and you know your unique injury history your training history your capabilities and leverages and strengths and weaknesses and technique and all these things and I know for me for so long it was a thing that I did that I, you know, tried to do to build these custom training programs, custom approaches, but I didn't really have any sort of method for it. It was just, that seems right. You know, it was, it was kind of an eyeballing uh, sort of effect. And I think a lot of coaches do fine with that approach. Um, It just didn't sit well enough with me. Like I wanted to know, I wanted to be more sure that the things I was observing were actually real, uh, and not just, uh, you know, not just the flavor of the moment, not just an artifact from, you know, some other client or, you know, there's all these different cognitive biases and coaches have those too. So how do you, how do you deal with this? How do you know that what I'm, how do I know as a coach, what, that what I'm giving to my athlete is the best training program that I can. And, Emerging strategies is is really a framework for building training that helps you to hone in on what that ideal training program will be. I've arrived at completely different training concepts for athletes just based on what they've responded well to. Uh, so I suppose I should kind of lay out in general, how it works, just kind of the brief version of of how it works. So what we want to do is to create a a testing process that lets us try out different training ideas and see in as clear a way as possible uh, what's working and what's not. And what I've noticed is that in a lot of traditional programs, there are a lot of variables that change each week maybe the reps change. This is a high volume week. That's a low volume week. Here's a a super high volume week and exercises are rotating in and out. Intensity is waving and so on. And there's so much going on at any given time that it's impossible to really tell what's having which effect. And I also don't really think that it's necessary to have all those changes happening all at the same time that if you were to give an athlete just one week of training and have them repeat it, then they're going to have some sort of response to that. And ideally I think if it's a well-constructed training week, they'll get better and that's good. You know, and if you can just monitor that for a little while, you're going to learn something. And I mean, I've learned all kinds of different things. I've counterintuitive things. I've found lifters that, just don't respond well to high intensity which you know powerlifters tend to peak with high intensity work so what do you do if if high intensity never makes you stronger and it always makes you feel bad well maybe you should not do that you know and i can tell you that i've worked with lifters for years and when we started using an emerging strategies approach I know I learned things about them that I didn't know before and that said a lot to me personally and and those things resulted in in them going to meets and setting PRs you know and that's that's what it's about you know so I think the the general recommendations do work for most people most of the time and that serves as a great starting point and and it's a fine way to go for a lot of people but if you're one of the individuals who responds to something strange, something just not even strange but just something not totally uh, orthodox then that gets to be really important for you to know and between all the different variables for all, all the different lifts that you're doing there's no way that everybody is that anybody really is responding in a totally orthodox way to everything all the time, you know, there's something that's different. Oh, you would get a little bit more out of doing pause squats versus, uh, versus pin squats or vice versa, you know, and you can inject a a huge number of different strategies into this kind of framework. We've had lifters come up with programs and, and kind of evolve into programs that look somewhat like a, like a West side type program. We've had other lifters that develop in a way that, you know, it looks more like a, an orthodox program that is popular in powerlifting now where you have a fairly high frequency of the competition lift. Uh, and then other lifters respond to things that are things that are strange to powerlifting training in general. Like I posted about today, uh, Greg, and this was, so we developed this strategy or, or really one of, one of our coaches, John Garfano, uh, developed a strategy that was based off of an idea that that we heard you talk about. I believe it was in mass uh, about uh, some motor learning research about pairing, pairing different exercises together. And, and I mean, you would be a lot more capable of speaking intelligently on that than, than I would be, but where we went with this idea was pairing the competition lift with an assistance exercise that's designed to teach something specific. Like, Oh, you've got a problem with your chest falling in the squat so we're going to pair the competition squat with a pin squat and and see if that has a positive effect you know and and if it does then you follow the trail of athlete response so Mm -hmm. that's kind of a a long monologue to to get at this but uh, hopefully that kind of lays out some of the basics so i I
1: think i think all of that makes a lot of sense from a conceptual perspective but like in terms of in terms of like the brass tacks of it, how would you go about like, you know, coming up with new ideas to test, testing those ideas and evaluating kind of what variables the given lifter responds best to? Like what does the actual implementation of the emerging strategies idea look like?
2: So let's say that uh, a new lifter signs up and I'm going to be coaching them. Uh, The first thing I would do is talk to them, get, get an idea of their history. Uh, what have they liked? What have they not liked? Maybe responded well to and not. Um, and kind of where do they want to go from here? And let's assume that we've got plenty of time to work with as well. Um, we would come up with a, with a training program that seems plausible, uh, that hopefully they're excited about. And uh, think of it like a training week. Uh, and usually it is a training week, although that can, that can vary. Um, but it's, it's one week and you're going to repeat that week every week for a while. And I mean the same exercises, the same reps, the same sets and the same RPE. And that's an important distinction. So the, the weight on the bar is going to change a little bit so that you can match the RPE. The idea is that I want you to get the same stimulus each week. And hopefully, you know, if you're doing this training, you're getting stronger, So we'll need to increase the weight on the bar a little bit to compensate for that additional strength gain. And that can help perpetuate the the strength gains moving forward. So it's the same week, you know, each week. And we're going to repeat that training week and monitor your response. And what we see is is one of a couple things. There's, There's three things, three responses that we normally see. Some lifters just get better. So week two is better than week one, week three is better than week two, and so on. Other lifters see a performance dip in week two, followed by a steady improvement from week three onward. And other lifters see kind of a stagnation from week one to whenever, uh, you know, no real noticeable performance increase or decrease. And then there's kind of a big jump toward the end. At some point, there needs to be a performance improvement. Otherwise, I would consider that a, a failed cycle, a failed development block. Uh, but there needs to be a performance improvement, and there usually is. So there's a performance improvement, but that doesn't last forever. And let's take the, the first response case, the case of the person that just steadily improves each week, just because that's a little easier to conceptualize. So. You do week one and then you do week two. The weights are a little bit heavier than week three. You improve a little, a little bit more and you keep going. You don't improve forever. At some point you peak and that peak is, is followed by a, a regression in strength. Um, and for the first development block, when we see that regression in strength, we'll usually let it go so that we see two weeks in a row of some sort of regression And that kind of concludes the first development block. And we look at the time that it took from the first week to the peak week. And we say, that's your time to peak. For some lifters, that's going to be three weeks. Other lifters, it might be eight or 10 weeks. Uh, It varies. I would say the average is five to six, although there are plenty outside of that average number. And it does seem to be fairly stable, meaning that if I give you a different development cycle, different exercises, different intensities. As long as the workload isn't weirdly different, uh, it'll still be around that same time to peak. And that's really useful when it comes time to plan for peaking competitions and things like that. From the end of your first development block, you'll go into uh, what we call a pivot block. And you can think of that like a deload. Uh, it's a little bit more than a deload, but the idea is to reduce the training stress, restore something like sensitivity to training. You, you're feeling better uh, and you're ready to train again. Uh, there's a little bit of a performance decrease, but you do try to maintain strength insofar as it as you're able to, uh, you know, while reducing fatigue and things like that. And then at the end of that pivot block, you start a new development block. Uh, And the the new development block is different from the first one. Uh, It'll be a different intensity, different exercise selection, and so on. Uh, And over time, you, well, I I should say at the end of each development block, you should do a block review um, where you look at what did you do and what results did it have? Okay, well, in this block, we trained competition squats for triples, and then we did pin squats, and then we did leg press. Uh, and that had, uh, you know, a a net gain of, uh, 20 pounds on my squat, you know, not necessarily a 20 pound PR, but 20 pounds of improvement from week one to week six. Um, and I'm just kind of making these numbers up as I go, but hopefully it, it serves as an example. And then. You do that again, the block review for the second block and the third block and so on. So when it's time for you to go to a competition, you look at all these block reviews and, and you basically replay your greatest hits. You say, okay, I notice that all the blocks where I have a really good response in my squat, I'm doing kind of medium intensity competition squatting and some kind of single leg work. Okay, that's interesting. You know, so why I don't know. And why is an interesting question, but when it comes time to plan your last block, you go with what, you know, and what you know at this point is that those things are correlated more than anything else with a high performance in your squat. So that's kind of how we build, uh, build the epistemology around, uh, uh, peeking into competitions.
1: That makes sense. So how, um, how stable do you find like the responses to a certain type of training? So if if you find what a a good looking developmental block looks like now, how much confidence can you have in that still being a pretty good developmental block, say three months from now or two years from
2: now? The more I look at this, the more those things seem to be moderately stable uh two years uh, i don't know about two years but three months i can be reasonably sure uh it's not foolproof you know there there are occasions where it'll it will miss but um it's also one of those things where i think it's the best information that i've got you know and even Mm -hmm. if it misses what else would i have done uh I'm not so sure because anything else at that point with what I knew at the time would have been a guess. Um, but I do, I do find that more often than not, it seems to work. Uh, it's not, it's not exactly like, okay, this block produced, uh, you know, a 20 pound, uh, improvement in my squat in the previous block. Uh, so it will produce another 20 pound improvement this time. It's not quite like that, but, Generally, good results seem to get you generally good results. Um, there is some sort of shelf life to it, and I'm not sure exactly what that is. Uh, so it's important like when I'm looking back through these block reviews, after a while, you collect a lot of them, you know so at what point do you start throwing them out like, okay, well that that data is two years old now. You're not the same lifter that you were two years ago at least we hope not. Um, so at what point do we start, you know, not considering those things, um, a year, somewhere between a year and two years seems to be a good idea to me right now. Um, but that's not really based on anything other than kind of my gut feeling at the moment, I would say. Nah, that makes
1: sense. And, and just, just one final question. Um, how, uh, To what degree do different lifts seem to respond similarly to similar variables? So like, for example, if you find that your squat does really, really well with, say, high intensity and moderate volume, do you find that that also correlates with what bench and deadlift respond well to, or do those seem to be just completely different variables you need to figure out?
2: I have... If I found that your bench responded best to high intensity, moderate volume, I would look there right away (laughs) Uh, when it comes to squatting and deadlifting. But it's also not uncommon to find people that have different quirks. Uh, So a couple years ago, I was working with Brett Gibbs for the 2018 World Championship. And what we found with him was that his deadlift responded great when we did low intensity volume work. So like 70% for reps, uh, that's when his deadlift was at its best. Uh, and it responded moderately well to like middle intensity zones, uh, not that great to high intensity. Uh, so we kind of reverse, uh, reverse pyramided into the, uh, competition that year. So his second to last block was in a middle intensity zone His last block was the lowest intensity that we had trained at and it went great. His bench on the other hand was kind of the opposite. It really did well on high intensities, heavy singles, but his was also kind of a unique scenario that it didn't, he wasn't able to maintain that for, for a really long time. So normally, and and I'll just kind of caveat this with, that's not normally the case. Normally, your time to peak is the same for each of the three lifts. You know, if you're five weeks to peak, it's going to be five weeks for the squat, bench, and deadlift. You know, maybe one of them is one week off from that, but it it seems to be pretty consistent. Brett was a strange case because his bench, only when we trained it at really high intensities, his time to peak on the bench would get really short. So I remember needing to kind of switch into a high intensity mid block for him. Uh, But that's how his bench responded best. That's again, that's a unique scenario that I wouldn't say that that's everybody. But again, if that's you, then that's going to be important for you to consider. That's just not the first place I would look.
1: That makes sense. Um, So as people have talked about uh, emerging strategies more, has there been any just chatter about it or misunderstandings about it that you would like to clear up, just so you know, just to make sure that when people talk about your concept of emerging strategies, they are actually talking about what it actually is and not just what they think it
2: is. I haven't seen that much of what I would say is like real misconceptions. I mean, maybe, maybe you have, and, and I'm just not that aware of things, but, uh, um, yeah, I haven't seen a lot of what I would consider misconceptions. Uh, It seems like the idea of all the lifts peaking, having, having a, a fairly similar time to peak, uh, is counterintuitive for a lot of people. I find people expect them to be different. Um, but they're usually not. And, and I would even say that, if you have one that's really different, the first thing that I would look at is maybe the training just didn't work that great for the odd lift. So let's say that your squat and your deadlift peak uh, in six, uh, six weeks, and then the bench seemed to peak in week three. Well, that's strange, and I would uh, the first assumption I would make is maybe that program just didn't work that great for the bench. And you should try some different variables or try try something different for that um, versus assuming that you just have a different time to peak for the bench. Um, most people that I work with, uh, they do have very similar times to peak uh, for, for all three competition lifts. That's probably the, the thing that I would say people um, misunderstand. Um, but the rest of it... Um, I think I think a lot of people just don't know that much about it yet uh, and mm-hmm. the ones that do are finding unique applications for it you know I've heard of people who uh, instead of adding weight each microcycle or adding reps each microcycle which that's not exactly how I would run it but I mean try it and see if it works you know the the, the neat thing about it is that you can, Follow athlete response. And if it gets you a better response and you can show that in some way, then that's justified belief as far as I'm concerned.
0: Mike, yeah, this isn't really a question. It's more uh, a comment. But I really love, you know, when you introduce this topic, you mentioned that a lot of people with their fluctuation in training variables, they're, you know, they're cycling through different intensities and cycling in and out of different exercise selections. And at a certain point, it's kind of hard to tell. You look back at this whirlwind of just cycling variables and you're like, what the hell actually worked when when you look back at it? I think that's one of the things that a lot of people would really benefit from, uh, you know, is getting, I guess, embracing this idea of having a slower, more methodical uh, approach to changing variables in training. So you know, I, I work with clients who a lot of times they'll be like, when are when are we gonna drastically change this, that, and the other thing all at the same time? And uh intuitively you're like, well, if we change all of it, how do we know what was an effective change? So um, like I said, not a question, but it, it's uh one of those things that this is a a thing I've been talking to many of my clients about recently is this idea of Let's slow down and change these things one at a time. I think a lot of people listening might benefit from this, even just the general concept of if you're going to make these training changes, uh, try to control uh, some number of these variables so you can actually make some solid observations over time.
2: Yeah. You know, I thought kind of one of the, there were a couple early observations for me that helped me kind of get behind the idea. And one was that I don't really think that having all the variables, all these interlocking cycles within cycles and um, constant change. I don't think that's really necessary. You know, like I think if if you had to simplify things as much as possible without, um, without losing the effectiveness of the program, how much does, does that constant change improve your adaptation of the training? Like, I I just can't think that it's all that much, you know? So that was one of the things. And, And I also remember kind of being concerned that, oh, my, my lifters are going to get bored, you know, doing the same training week over and over. And again, there's probably a selection bias, uh, in this, um, But what I've noticed with my own lifters is that I've had almost zero problem with like boredom complaints. And it seems like at least for power lifters, if you're adding weight to the bar every week, then training is fun. And then when that stops and it does eventually stop, now we're not having fun anymore, but also now it's time to change some things, you know, and then we go into a pivot and we change into a new development block and so on. And that's... I don't have the problems with boredom that I anticipated in the beginning.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I think uh, you probably hit the nail on the head when it comes to, uh, I, I would think because you uh, are, are such an appealing coach for really high level power lifters, um, you probably run into it less than others. But, you know, for me, I get uh, a pretty even mix of people who have very strength-oriented and performance-oriented goals, and some people that have more physique-oriented goals. And I can tell you from the physique-oriented folks, there's almost this uh, – it seems like a prevalent thought that if you're not changing, you're not trying. You know, it's, it's – we have to be <laughs> cycling everything at all times. Um, and it's probably because, you know, Mike, you remember reading the old muscle magazines. Yeah. And it's like, what's 39 ways to target my chest in a single workout? So uh, you know <laughs> right. th- there are certain subgroups within fitness that it's a little bit harder to sell on this idea where they say, okay, what do we change in this week? And it's like we just keep getting better. <laughs> like if we change things, yeah. it might not be good for us. But we got a really good thing going, and, and sometimes that is a, a surprisingly difficult sell.
2: Yeah. Well, not to veer too far off into just coaching philosophy, but you know we talk about this this change and. I get asked a lot, like, what do I think the, the mechanism behind it is like, why do I think the change is meaningful? Why do I think that it's helpful? And I don't really know the answer to it, but I'd be willing to bet that at least part of it is attention that from a powerlifter standpoint, if I can get you engaged with the training, if I can get you paying attention, having fun, even, uh, you know, looking forward to the training, thinking about it. And then you go in there and you execute it and you're feeling good about it. and The weights are going up. That's good. And that's, that's positive. Uh, I, I, I just get this sense that that's making the training more effective. And when, when that momentum kind of runs out, well, if I can change something and, you know, now we're doing a new rep range and we're doing a new exercise or something like that, and, uh, now you're paying attention again, then even better, you know, whereas if you do have a personality where you're like, look, I don't really care that the weight is five pounds heavier this week. You know, I'm ready to do a different exercise. Then that might matter as well. You know, um, kind of getting that psychological buy-in, like that was something that I heard coaches talk about forever. And it just didn't really mean a whole lot to me until, I would say in the last couple of years, like I've started to to kind of at least hope hope I understand it a little bit better, you know, and and I place a lot more value on it. it it's not just getting the athlete buy in, but it, there's a certain enthusiasm that you bring to the training that I think makes a makes a real difference. I agree. No, I
1: I agree with that wholeheartedly as well. So, Mike, one question I wanted to ask you, and this is this is a huge change of gears here. Um, so you are, I I would say one of just a small handful of people who has coached as many world-class athletes as you have. Um, and so you, you would probably be in a better position to, to answer this question or at least to muse about this question than just about anyone. Um, so one of the things that I'm interested by, fascinated in uh, is like what? Like what eventually stops people from progressing? Like, w- like why don't people just get bigger and stronger forever? Uh, and I I don't so much want to ask you about like maybe mechanisms behind that, but what are signs you have seen, if any, in uh like in yourself or maybe in some of your athletes that are like potential signs that the athlete is you know maybe reaching the highest level of strength development that they are ever going to attain like ha- have you seen any trends or commonalities there that may provide some sort of clue that an athlete is n- nearing or at their like quote-unquote genetic limit
2: man so you got to take a shot at me like that <laughs> no i I'm just (laughs) kidding. No, I mean, this is truthfully something I've been thinking about. So my own training, I've been training, trying to get stronger, um, for 22 years now. Yeah. 22 years, uh, almost 23. Um, and I mean, the strength is definitely a lot harder to come by than it used to be. Uh, I am kind of eternally hopeful though. Like I have like, like you mentioned working with high level athletes. I, I've not ever really run into someone where I said, you know what? I don't have any more ideas. You know um, there's always something that I want to try or what if we try to, to get you to produce force this way or that way. Um, I think a lot of by the, by that time in a, a lifter's career, a lot of the technical optimization is, has been done, you know, uh, you can try to improve muscle mass. Um, you can try to, uh, increase training volume, but that's a lot of times limited, uh, either physically or, you know, just life socially, I guess. Um, you know, but I think that's what takes me back to, trying different exercises. And what if we, you know, you, you tend to have a problem in your deadlift with, with this mechanic or that mechanic. Like what if we concentrate the workload and the energy that we do have on fixing that problem? Does that get us anywhere? And I mean, I know this is kind of not answering the question, but I, I try not to, I guess I kind of have a never say die approach to it. So, even if i've got a lifter who's probably there you know like i'm i'm still looking i'm still kicking over rocks and it's like look man you probably kicked over all the rocks but you know i'm gonna i'm gonna keep checking until until they've had enough i guess
1: (laughs) (laughs) no i gotcha. that uh that makes a lot of sense so one of the things you you touched on there is you know by that by that point in someone's training career they've probably you know underwent all of the technical optimizations that they're going to. Um, what, so I, I noticed you had an article on your website from, oh, maybe like a year ago mm-hmm. uh, about self-organizing technique, which I actually didn't see when it was published. Um, and I just saw that like 20 minutes before we started recording <laughs> when I was trying to, to put some questions together. Um, so Would you mind just, I I guess, like briefly talking about that concept, the idea of like universal, quote unquote, optimal form and how you would go about making technique changes for your athletes or finding the ideal technique for a new athlete?
2: Well, you remember a couple years ago, there was there were these photographs that were circulating around uh, and they were femurs and pelvises and uh they were showing like all the different architecture of femurs and pelvises like oh this person had really deep hip sockets and this person had shallow hip sockets and this person had a a a femur that uh, attached at this angle versus that angle and and so on um that was kind of making the rounds a couple years ago and i think it kind of yeah kind of really highlighted the anatomical differences. Like we know certain things, right? Like some people have long legs or short legs, long torso, short torso. So we know stuff like that, but there's stuff that we can't see going on as well. And so like I'm working with, uh, David Wilson now and David's got a really wide squat stance. And actually that's all anyone can ever seem to talk about when he posts the video, like he's squatting these ridiculous weights, And it's like, like, guys, it's just a wide stance squat. Like, let's talk about something else, you know. Um, But he's an example of of somebody who I think has just kind of found this technique. It agrees with his hips. He's been doing it for a long time. And uh, he's adapted to it. Um, Like people are... Uh, I would say fearful a lot of times of of squatting with a stance like that, uh, or at least you would think so based on reading internet comments. Um, but, <laughs> but, you know, if you've been doing it for years, you know, it's probably fine. You know, you adapt to those things. Um, I would say that there are some things that I, I wouldn't really want my athletes to adapt to. And, you know, if they were you know deadlifting with a with a really rounded back or certainly if they were lifting with some technique that was against the rules um you know you've got to have a conversation at that point um so there there are some things that i would still say or at least i'm not comfortable with um but outside of that i want them to try different things and you know take note oh it feels better when i lift this way or that way. And if if there's something that's grossly inefficient, then you know, we'll try to, try to, uh, adjust it, but I don't do it in a real top down way. And probably my favorite example of that is, is the, uh, chest fall pattern in the squat. Um, some people, well, most people actually, when the weight gets heavy enough, as they squat out of the bottom, the hips come up, Kind of out of proportion with the shoulders, you know, and it, it kind of when it gets really noticeable, it looks like a good morning squat. But even when it's not that bad, uh, it's a little bit of a chest fall pattern. Um, I will try to give lifters exercises that uh, teach them to do it correctly. So rather than cue them repeatedly over and over, I want them to to have a different perceptual feedback of that. So if let's say that you're having that problem, I might assign pin squats or safety bar squats, something that challenges you to maintain uh, the torso position. And if you do it right, things are a little bit easier. You can use a little bit more weight. And if you do it wrong, then things are harder uh, and you use less weight. Well, powerlifters like to use more weight. So it's kind of a built-in feedback mechanism in the lift itself, which is really useful in an online setting, uh, because I can't be there and cue them every rep. So kind of, it, it teaches you to feel it, which is what you need to do anyway. Uh, so we try to do things like that. Things like uh, things, uh, bar path in the bench seems to be a pretty common one as well. Uh, trying to teach people to get the bar back over the shoulders early in the lift and, and things like that. All right. So, Mike, the, the last question we have for
1: you before we, uh, we wrap everything up is just based on, you know, what you see people talking about online. Are there any coaching practices you partake in or things you believe really strongly that either go against um, what is at least perceived to be the scientific consensus or conventional wisdom in the, the strength and coaching
2: world? Probably the biggest one, I'd be interested in your thoughts on this as well. Uh, I see a value in overload work. Um, At at least that's kind of what we've come to call it. Uh, And I'm not quite sure that I can articulate like a mechanism for it, but I just see a use for it. Uh, So what I mean is um, things like uh, bands and chains, slingshots, uh, doing... Squats with knee wraps for people who just compete in sleeves and, and even, even more aggressive, like classic powerlifting gear, um, partial ranges of motion, all that stuff. I am willing to try it. And usually I'm more adventurous with it on the bench than, than, uh, the other lifts and probably deadlift is second and squat is, is, last. But, um, I, I do try those things and I see lifters, Uh, again, I I wouldn't know what to tell you is like the, for sure mechanism for how that's working. But I noticed that, Hey, every time I put slingshot bench in this, in this guy's program, his bench gets better. Every time we do deadlifts with chains or deadlifts with bands, it doesn't matter which one, uh, her deadlift goes up. So, yeah, (laughs) you know, it's one of those things that I'll see people, uh, sometimes other coaches or just people uh, talk about how it's silly to do those things. And I, I think, well, okay, maybe it's silly, but we do silly things and our lips go up. So uh, I guess I'll keep doing silly things. Right. So that, I, I suppose that's probably the first one that jumps to mind for me.
1: No, I, I gotcha that. uh, I haven't, I haven't noticed the same thing really, but there is, uh, some level of precedent for it in the research. Um, my, I don't know, this could be completely wrong, but my hunch is that it might have to do with, like, bone and connective tissue adaptation. Like, I, I think people, I think people underrate and just underestimate how much crosstalk there is between, muscle and connective tissue and muscle and bone and connective tissue and bone. Like there's, are signaling pathways that allow all of those tissues to, to talk to each other basically. And there also seems to be a reasonably strong relationship between just how large someone's skeleton is and how much bone mass they have and how much muscle they can eventually wind up with. And so I I wonder if I wonder if those things are related. And it's like, you know, once you do enough conventional powerlifting training, you know, it, it helps you build more bone to a certain point. And then eventually it stops being effective. Mm. Like you've you've essentially gotten all of those adaptations you're going to, but then, you know, you really add a lot more load into the mix and you can maybe like stimulate some more osteogenesis like that's that's a possibility i guess <laughs> I, I guess one way you could i guess one way you could test that if you didn't have um if you didn't have access to like a dexa to directly assess it is you could see whether overload work is more effective for younger lifters versus like masters lifters so you know if you see that like pin squats and partial deadlifts and slingshot bench really help like younger lifters more frequently, but maybe not as much masters lifters who probably, you know, can probably increase bone mineral density to some degree, but not as robustly as a younger lifter could. That might give some, some indication in that direction. I would be interested to see that at least. I mean, you'd have
2: to, to look at actual numbers and stuff and not just random hunches, but my hunch is that it's probably better for, um, or I see it being effective more often for experienced lifters. Um, like I even had a, a well, one of our coaches, Mark, um, he swore up and down that reverse band squats made his squat go up. And I, I've just never been a fan of that movement at all. And, uh, you know, reluctantly agreed to include it. And I'll be darned. It, it, it's at least associated with improvements in the squat for him you know that's he's like the only guy that i've ever ever had that experience with so
1: no i mean that that's definitely interesting one of the things i've noticed and and this could just be you know a matter of athlete pool is that like powerlifters are obviously way better than strongman competitors at squat and bench press but like the elite strongmen seem to deadlift especially conventional, considerably more than the top powerlifters do. Right. And like, you know, on one hand, there is more money in strongman. But on the other hand, the total athlete pool in powerlifting seems to be an order of magnitude larger, if not more. So you would think that there would be some folks with genetics like that filtering their way into powerlifting, but like the numbers don't really back it up. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the way strongmen train deadlift, like they do way more partials than we do. So I, I do wonder if there's something to that. Like, I don't, I don't know what the mechanism is, but I, I I haven't noticed that with, with squat and bench really, but, but I have seen deadlift partials, um, be, be pretty effective for quite a few people.
2: Yeah. I, I will say that it seems to be partials least often. Uh, I find like deadlifting with chains or bands and, uh benching with a slingshot occasionally chains or bands are probably the most likely to work just on a a gross level. I seem to remember that you did a block. Oh, it was probably a long time ago now of I think partial squatting. I think you were using a a yoke to do some partial squats, but I never Mm -hmm. really heard how that worked out. Uh, (laughs) went well for a couple weeks and then, uh,
1: had, you know my my fiftieth back injury, like four weeks into the block. So Dang, hard to know in. how it would have finished up. Yeah, not 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 because <laughs> of that. It was from. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Probably just like bending over funny or something. Uh, yeah,
2: yeah, as those things Sneezing go wrong. Yeah, I, I I should try that again though. Yeah, that was fun while it Run. lasted. Run the experiment. I mean, that's the that's the other part of it, right? Like, I know that you've uh, uh, followed bud jeffries over the years and i mean he's a guy that just likes lifting heavy stuff you know and will find ways to lift heavy stuff and i think there's if it's not like directly transferring i mean there's something to be said for having fun with your training for sure all right
1: mike so that um that brings us to the end of the pre-prepared questions we had for you on topics we wanted to cover Is there anything else just currently that you are really interested in or passionate about that, you know, you just like to chat about and share with the world?
2: I mean, you guys hit on the stuff that I seem to be spending most of my time thinking about.
0: You know what that is, Mike? That is extreme prep work, Uh, very diligent research on our end. So that's a huge compliment.
2: I mean, I think you guys have a team or something, (laughs) right?
0: We we have several... uh, interns that work around Intern, the clock yeah. for no
2: money
1: <laughs> yeah so so full disclosure actually um we were out of town this weekend and my car just like completely broke down and shit the bed on <laughs> saw that On what, what was that thursday or friday um so i completely forgot we were recording this until i got a calendar <laughs> notification 30 minutes prior and eric completely forgot we were recording this until I told him about it 20 minutes prior. <laughs> so we we actually are just huge fans of, of the deep Mike to lore.
2: And these were questions pretty much completely off the dome. Well, I, I do hope that, you know, someday, like once I'm, once I'm gone from this world, that uh, it'll be something like, uh, like Tolkien, you know, like people will continue to <laughs> <laughs> continue to develop the storylines in my absence, you know,
0: I will say like (laughs) Greg's story is a hundred percent true. Uh, (laughs) he found out 30 minutes pre and uh, 10 minutes later (laughs) told me about it. But, uh, I remember, uh, at the European powerlifting conference, uh, just hanging around while the two of you guys talked and legitimately having a good time while saying nothing, just, uh, kind of a fly on the wall, listening to you guys chat about training. So I, uh, for any other interview, I would have been like, "Okay, we're screwed." But for this one, I was like, nah, <laughs> "We're fine. This is going to be fun." And uh, no, it, it's been it's been really fun uh, listening to you guys again and uh, interjecting here and there.
2: Yeah, well, training is like the one thing in my life that I can really monologue on, so <laughs> I'll fill the space. <laughs> so, Mike, where can uh, where can people stay up to date with you? Uh, probably Instagram is the best uh, best way for me, and it would just be Mike Tushier. Uh, on Instagram, Uh, but we're also uh, active there through reactive training systems and it's reactive training systems on YouTube as well. Uh, We're putting YouTube videos out uh, weekly. Um, Then we do our own podcast as well. Oh, probably shouldn't say that. Right. (laughs) Um, But we do, we do do a podcast and we cross post that on YouTube most of the time. Sounds good. Well, I think that does it for us. So, uh, Thanks again for coming
1: on. Hope your training goes well. Hope everything. Hope everything else just goes well with you uh, from now until the end of time. Do you have <laughs> just any
2: final thoughts you want to leave the listeners with? Um, I really like Eliko's uh, I- slogan "Strong is happy." So that I guess that's my. Uh, that's what immediately comes to mind.
0: Awesome. Well. Mike, thanks so much for coming on. We've brought up your impending death, or at least alluded to it yeah. twice, I think, already, so we should probably end the call before we before we talk about <laughs> Mike's forthcoming death a third time.
1: Right. No, yeah. I, I said I said until the end of time. I'm implying that Ray Kurzweil's singularity is going to come and and Mecca Mike Tashir is going to get uploaded into the cloud and produce world champions until the heat death of the universe.
0: Yeah, it's it's just if you read the transcript of this, you would think that Mike is 104 years old on his deathbed. (laughs) (laughs) These are his concluding remarks to the world. I know, right? Well,
2: in powerlifting terms, it it feels like that sometimes. I'm like, guys,
0: I'm 34. I don't I don't know what to tell you. Like, I'm not even a masters lifter yet. All right. Well, Mike, once again, thanks so much for joining us. Everyone listening, thank you for tuning in, and we will see you in 2020. Thanks for listening to the Stronger by Science podcast. Now, Greg and I are not experts in medicine or health or really anything else for that matter. So, before you make any changes to your diet and exercise habits, make sure you check with a doctor or another healthcare professional. If you enjoyed this podcast and you'd like to support it, visit StrongerByScience.com to check out the products and services that we offer. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.